0: Why did I have to fall in love with such a fool? I
1: ran into a story for you, a front-page story.
0: Gus, you're a dear, sweet boy, and you'll bring my little present.
1: You're listening to
0: The Pictures Got Small, an appreciation podcast for the glamorous
1: and sometimes dark history of old Hollywood, hosted by Francesca Luisi.
0: I happen to know the police are looking
1: for this car. Oh dear, I hoped you wouldn't. You heard me say no, didn't you? Well, that's what I mean.
0: See here, I told you I wasn't asking anything from anybody. I can take care of myself. Maybe you have, but if you think I want to stay cooped up in this place any longer than I have to... This is one of the biggest stories that's cracked in a long time. I've simply got to get it to my paper. No worry about that. We've got all the time in the world.
1: Welcome back to The Pictures Got Small. My name is Francesca Luisi, and I'm your host. And thank you for joining me for Episode 3, where we will be taking a look at the making of East of Eden. This is definitely the longest episode that I've done so far. We're well over an hour. Um, But I had a lot of... I know I say this in every episode, but I really had a lot of fun making this one. I actually, when I decided to do East of Eden, I instantly regretted it because I knew it was going to be a lot of work, but I'm so glad that I decided to do it in the end because the script for this episode is by far my favorite one. This is definitely the episode that I'm most proud of. Also, in case this makes a difference, I just want to say that there is some very foul language in this episode, Uh, the kind of language that I wouldn't want my mother to hear me say on the radio. So I'm just going to put that out there just in case. I thought about taking the words out altogether, but they actually are kind of important. They're only used in quotations that I was reciting, and I felt that they were kind of important. So I did leave them in, but I just want to give you a heads up in case that's something that you need to be aware of. Uh, Also, in episode two, I mentioned the Hidden Hollywood YouTube channel, which was this show on YouTube that I found that I was loving. And Savannah, the host of that show, will actually be joining us today to discuss the cultural impact of both the film and James Dean's legacy. So if you haven't already, definitely check out Hidden Hollywood on YouTube. And you can find Savannah on Instagram at darkpinup. Also, I just want to say, as always, thank you so much for the continued support of the show. I'm blown away that I have any listeners at all. And every time I check the analytics, I just I'm so overwhelmed by the support and love that the show has been getting. People have been so kind. And so, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for continuing to come back and listen to all these episodes. I'm loving getting to do this and you guys make it worthwhile. So yeah, thank you for that. Also, Happy New Year. I hope everybody had a great holiday. I hope 2021 will be much better for all of us. And yeah, I'm just glad you're here. So with that being said, let's get into the episode. Please allow me to tell you the story behind the making of East of Eden. The camera is trained on a well-dressed woman as she walks purposely down a dirt road in what looks to have once been an old, wild west town. She stalks past a young man with a halo of blonde hair who sits at the curb. She pays him no mind, oblivious that he is watching her over his shoulder with a precocious determination, his demeanor and posture that of a child about to do something he knows he shouldn't. The young man knows what the woman does not, that she is the mother that abandoned him long ago, whom for years he believed to be dead. This is the opening scene of the 1955 film East of Eden and cinema's introduction to the soon-to-be-legendary James Dean in his first major movie role. The film was a loose adaptation of the 1952 John Steinbeck novel of the same name. That year... Steinbeck and famed director Elia Kazan worked together on Viva Zapata, the biopic of Mexican revolutionary Emiliano Zapata that had starred Marlon Brando. This collaboration would be the start of an enduring friendship between Steinbeck and Kazan. Steinbeck had already made his literary bones with his classics of Mice and Men and The Grapes of Wrath, but it was east of Eden that the author felt was his real triumph, writing in a journal entry... It has everything in it I have been able to learn about my craft and profession in all these years, always before I have held something back for later. Nothing is held back here. This is not practice for a future. This is what I have practiced for. In his journal, Steinbeck called the biblical tale of Adam and Eve a strange story that haunts me. The name of his novel derives from the Bible, where Cain... After slaying his brother Abel, quote, went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. His novel would be a contemporary retelling of this tale. He set the story in his hometown of Salinas, California, as he did in many of his previous works. However, Salinas, known as the salad bowl of the world for its rich agriculture, makes for a perfect modern-day Garden of Eden. "'My father had a way of taking a gigantic human myth like Cain and Abel "'and putting it next door to you,' said Steinbeck's son, Tom. Salinas and Monterey are themselves characters within the story. "'If Selenus is a substitute for the Garden of Eden, "'Monterey serves as the land of Nod.' "'My father did not have a great deal of nostalgia "'for the Selenus of everyone else,' says Tom Steinbeck. "'There was his Selenus, but it's not an attractive town.' It's a small town with small-town views. He saw the failings of his characters mimicked in the failings of the environment they grew up in. Instead of Adam and Eve, Steinbeck's couple is Adam, a farmer, and Kate, his monstrous, destructive bride who sneaks off with Adam's brother on their wedding night rather than spend the evening with him. It is implied that Adam believes himself to be Aaron's father and his brother, Cal's. The novel provides a rich and complex history for the Trask family, specifically Adam, whose wife shoots him before running out on him and their two infant sons. Heartbroken over his wife's betrayal, Adam is so distraught that he doesn't even name the children until after their first birthday. Adam never gets over the collapse of his marriage, isolating himself until his sons grow into young men. Steinbeck would draw from his family's history when crafting the story. One of the characters, Samuel, an Irish immigrant who comes to America at the start of the 20th century, was based on the author's maternal grandfather. Steinbeck even writes a young version of himself into the story as a minor character. Steinbeck did not have a close, endearing relationship with his father, John Sr., a stern farmer that was difficult to please and struggled financially. One of Steinbeck's private insecurities was that he was doomed to become like his father, a complexity he wrote into the story and encapsulated with the relationship of Cal and Adam. There's a lot more to the book's version of Kate than would be shown in the film. In Steinbeck's version, she's compared to a monster in her introduction who murdered her parents by burning down the family home, falsely accused two young men of rape, and had an affair with one of her teachers. Steinbeck's 1948 divorce from his second wife, Gwen, devastated the author, who was very much in love with his wife. The collapse of their marriage informed his writing when he created Kate, whose relationship with Adam has parallels to his actual marriage. Though Adam was heavily inspired by Steinbeck's father, the disappointment Adam feels over his failed marriage to Kate and his difficulties connecting with his sons was pulled from the author's own experiences. In the book's final portion, Steinbeck delves into the story of Cain and Abel, which he called The Basis of All Human Neurosis. According to Tom Steinbeck, his father intended the book to serve as a cautionary tale. That's why it's dedicated to my brother and myself. My father loved cautionary tales. He thought you could solve a lot of problems for humans if you basically could lay out someone in a similar situation. That's what storytelling was for, and you could sort of come to decisions based on what happens to people in those kinds of stories. My father thought that literature was functional. He did not believe in absolute good or absolute evil. He believed our awareness of these things created the identities we set up for them. When he finished the final draft, Steinbeck wrote in a letter to a friend, I finished my book a week ago, the longest and surely the most difficult work I've ever done. I have put all of the things I have wanted to write all my life. This is the book if it is not good i have fooled myself all this time i don't mean i will stop but this is a definite milestone and i feel released having done this i can do anything i want always i had this book waiting to be written the book was a massive success when it was released in september 1952 landing at the top of the best seller list in november where it stayed through december and into january of 1953 despite being panned by critics today it is considered to be one of the more ambitious of Steinbeck's works. Elia Kazan was gifted an advanced copy of East of Eden before it was published. After he finished reading it, the director said in a letter to Steinbeck, Eden is the toughest dramatization I've ever seen, and for one reason. It's so rich. There's so much of it, even when you take only the last fourth. Kazan would do exactly that. He had just left Columbia Pictures for Warner Brothers and asked studio chief Jack Warner to purchase the film rights for him. Surprised at how willing Warner was, Kazan called the meeting, "...the easiest sale I've ever made." Warner even granted Kazan an unlimited budget, casting approval, and say-so over the film's final edit. Steinbeck had been paid $125,000 for the rights, along with the promise of 25% of the profits. Once the rights were acquired, Kazan began thinking about how best to adapt the book into a screenplay. Rather than tackle the multi-generational saga, he chose to focus on the latter part of the novel, roughly chapters 39 through 55, taking just the last 90 or so pages of the book's 560 and making the division between Cal and his father the focal point of the story. Kazan already had 10 feature films under his belt by the time East of Eden went into development, and had won two of three Academy Award nominations, Best Director Trophies for 1947's Gentleman's Agreement, and On the Waterfront from 1954. As the founder of the famed theater workshop, The Actors Studio, Kazan had a reputation for being the actor's director, as he had a knack for getting the best dramatic performances out of his actors. By the end of his career, Kazan's films would earn 21 acting Oscar nominations, nine of which were won. He directed Death of a Salesman on Broadway, and in 1951 he made the film version of another stage play he directed, Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire, which brought Oscars to Vivian Leigh and Kim Stanley, and introduced the world to a scintillating Marlon Brando. His films often highlighted causes that were important to the director. Gentleman's Agreement tackled anti-Semitism, and 1949's Pinky addressed the racial injustices of African Americans. Of course, not by hiring any black stars, but by choosing instead to cast white actors as light-skinned blacks, but that's a story for another day. The conflict between Cal and Adam struck a chord with Kazan, who saw much of himself in Cal. "'I knew a guy like that, myself,' Kazan said of his personal connection to the character." Kazan also had an unsound relationship with his father, an old-fashioned Greek immigrant who never understood or approved of his son. He objected to Elia going to college and instead wanted his son to join him in the rug business. Even more than that, Kazan identified with Cal as an outsider, as the director had twice provided the House Un-American Activities Committee with names of eight known communists in 1952 ruining the careers of writer Clifford Odets and actors Art Smith and Morris Karnofsky, as well as others. Kazan saved his career by destroying eight others and lost the respect and friendship of many in the industry. In surviving the blacklist, Kazan was able to continue his film career, making large-scale movies while many of his peers lost their livelihoods. Once celebrated... Kazan was now ostracized for his cooperation and found himself on the outside looking in, much as Cal does. The first film Kazan would make after testifying before HUAC was On the Waterfront, the screenplay for which was penned by writer Bud Schulberg, who had given up 15 people to the committee. Of his decision, Schulberg later said, I thought those people had already become so identified with the party that I didn't feel as if I was fingering the criminals. On the Waterfront told the story of a washed-up prizefighter-turned-longshoreman who risks his life by testifying against the union corruption at the New York docks. Kazan and Schulberg used this as an allegory of defense for their participation with the committee. The film was a smash both critically and commercially, winning eight Academy Awards, including those for Brando, Kazan, and Schulberg. Despite the success of On the Waterfront, many in Hollywood found Kazan's actions irredeemable and the industry's elite shunned the director. He would follow up this film with East of Eden. Kazan brought in writer Paul Osborne to help him with the script and accredited Osborne with capturing the biblical likeness of Steinbeck's book, adding that, as the son of a minister, Osborne was perfectly suited for the scriptural reimagining. The steely, deeply religious version of Adam Trask was born of their collaboration. As in the novel, Adam is grief-stricken over his wife's abandonment, rendering him incapable of paying much attention to his sons. Together, Kazan and Osborne would home in on the character of Cal and his desperation to earn his father's affection. The final script would be an obvious retelling of the story of Cain and Abel, the doomed brothers from the Old Testament, leaving out the expansive history and youth of Adam and Kate. The film begins in 1917, with America on the brink of joining World War I. Brothers Caleb, Cal for short, and Aaron are the twin sons of Adam Trask, a successful farmer who also serves as chairman of the town's local draft board. Adam is a staunchly religious man, and Cal has never been close to his father, who obviously prefers Aaron over him. Adam has led his sons to believe that their mother, Kate, died when the boys were small. However, early on in the film, the rebellious Cal discovers the truth. Not only is Kate alive, but she runs a nearby brothel, a shocking revelation that Cal decides not to share with Aaron. When Adam loses thousands of dollars in a vegetable transportation venture, basically trying to keep produce refrigerated long enough to be shipped long distance, Cal, eager to earn his father's approval, secretly enters the bean-growing business in an attempt to earn back some of the money. With the United States on the verge of war, Cal knows that the demand, and with it the price, of beans will increase, allowing him an opportunity to earn a profit. He returns to the brothel and confronts Kate, revealing himself as her son, and asks her to lend him $5,000 to start his business. Should his investment prove to be lucrative, Cal hopes it will finally help him earn Adam's respect. As expected, the U.S. gets involved in the war— and Cal's bean business turns out to be successful. During a surprise birthday party for Adam, planned by Cal and Aaron's girlfriend, Abra, who is slowly growing closer to Cal, Aaron announces that they are engaged. Feeling upstaged by his brother, Cal presents Adam with the earnings from his business as a surprise gift. Once Adam learns how Cal earned the money, By profiting off a war that he, as a member of the draft board, has sent other people's sons to die in, Adam refuses the cash. Cal breaks down, feeling as though his father's refusal was not just a rejection of his gift, but of him. Abra tries to comfort Cal, and Aaron realizes that his brother and his newly christened fiancé are closer than he thought. Aaron chases after Abra and tells Cal to stay away from her. In a fit of jealousy, Cal reveals the truth about Kate to Aaron, bringing his brother to her brothel so he can see for himself. Aaron, who had for so long imagined his mother as a sweet, angelic woman, cannot handle the shock of seeing her. Aaron has a full-on mental collapse, drinking himself into a stupor before signing up to join the army. Back home, Adam demands that Cal tell him where Aaron went, to which Cal replies that he is not his brother's keeper before eventually confessing to Adam that he took Aaron to see Kate. The sheriff shows up to tell Adam that Aaron is about to run off with the army, and Adam rushes down to the train station to try to reason with him. When he finds Aaron, he is laughing maniacally with his head hanging out of the window as the train departs. Adam takes a stroke from the shock that leaves him paralyzed and unable to speak. At the Trask home, some time later, Cal and Abra sit at Adam's bedside, where a nurse tends to him. Adam refuses to acknowledge Cal, who storms out of the room. Abra pleads with Adam to warm up to Cal before he loses him, too. When Cal returns, Adam, struggling to speak, asks him to get rid of the nurse and to not hire any more help, implying that he wants Cal to stay and take care of him. The film ends with Cal sitting alone beside Adam's bed, suggesting that the divide between father and son is beginning to close. Where God favored Abel over Cain, Adam favors Aaron over Cal, who unsuccessfully jockeys for the attention and affection of his distant father. In the biblical tale, Cain murders Abel. In the film, while Cal doesn't literally or physically kill Aaron he does end his brother's innocence in naivete, a death of Aaron's spirit. Also, with Aaron running off to war with a weakened mental state, it's safe to assume he will not fare well on his own. In the novel, Aaron is killed in combat. Of the character of Cal, Kazan said, Cal is so absorbed in the problem with his father that he can't even have a girl in any way except for half an hour. This is important in understanding Cal's motivations. Unlike the depictions of typical love-sick young men his age, it is not the love of a girl that Cal yearns for most, making the romantic triangle between Cal, Aaron, and Abra secondary to the plot. Kazan initially eyed Brando for Cal and Montgomery Clift for Aaron before deciding that the actors were too old to portray teenage brothers. He wanted another Brando, an actor who would jump off the screen in the same way. Cal was close to Kazan's heart, and he would make sure that the role went to a capable actor. I get a kick out of working with unknowns, people who were hungry. It's a life-or-death struggle for them, and they give their utmost to the role. This quality disappears later. They become civilized and normal, Kazan said. While staying mum about the film's lead, Kazan assembled a cast of veteran actors to fill out the supporting roles. It may be surprising today to see that Julie Harris received top billing on East of Eden, but at the time, she was an established stage and screen actress and the most recognizable member of the cast. Harris had previously scored an Academy Award nomination in 1952 for the member of the wedding and won a Tony for her performance as Sally Bowles in I Am a Camera. However, Jack Warner was not in favor of Harris's casting, as she was about 10 years older than Abram would have been in the story. But Julie Harris's age had never been a problem for her before. In the member of the wedding, the then 27-year-old had played a young girl of only 12. Harris had been one of the first actors to join the actor's studio, where she first met Kazan. The two had even worked together on a play that was put on by the studio. Of Kazan, Harris said, he adored actors. He was exciting to be with and got everyone excited about what they were doing. Kazan called Julie Harris one of the most beautiful people I've ever known in my life, going on to say that she had helped get James Dean and Richard Davalos through the film. Kazan praised Harris for her dedication and lack of pretension and what he considered the right amount of purity and erotic awareness that the role of Abra demanded. Abra's attraction to Cal is more than sexual. The two share a kinship in that she is not close with her father either and begins to see that she can connect with Cal on a deeper level than she does with Aaron. Canadian-born actor Raymond Massey was cast as Adam Trask, though not by Kazan. Massey lobbied for, and was granted, a role in Kazan's latest picture as a condition for agreeing to appear in the war movie Battle Cry. As Adam, Massey would be the visual representation of the traditional-minded older generation that both Steinbeck and Kazan had grown up with. Though he was given the part of Adam by default, Massey was perfect for the role. He was staunchly both socially and politically conservative and deeply religious. Massey was nominated for an Oscar for his starring role in 1940's Abe Lincoln in Illinois and is commonly known today for his performance in Arsenic and Old Lace, where he played Boris Karloff lookalike Jonathan Brewster, a man who did not appreciate being reminded of the resemblance. Acclaimed stage actress Jo Van Fleet was cast as Kate, the eve of the story. Van Fleet was well-known on Broadway with roles in Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale and King Lear, and had won a Tony for the trip to Bountiful. She joined the actor's studio in the early 50s, where she first met Kazan, who would direct her in two stage plays before kick-starting her film career with East of Eden. Kate is introduced in the book with this line, "'I believe there are monsters born in the world to human parents.'" While the film's version of Kate differed slightly from the book, Joe Van Fleet, who was only 38 years old at the time, far younger than her character, still turned in a menacing performance as the callous madam who abandoned her family for a life of deviance. Though she would have minimal screen time, Van Fleet held her own in a cast of exciting and much younger newcomers. People have forgotten about Joe Van Fleet. She's neglected now. But she was a great actress, Kazan later said of her. Kazan attributed Dean's eventual casting to Osborne, who advised the director to check out a young actor who was making waves in The Immoralist* on Broadway. Paul Osborne said to me, You ought to go to the theater and look at the fella playing some sort of Arab, Kazan recalled. I saw him playing a bit part in a theater on 45th Street, and I didn't think much of him. I called Jimmy Dean to the Warner Brothers office, and he came, and he just sat there looking rather surly and unresponsive. He finally said to me, do you want to ride on my motorcycle? So I said, yeah, I'll take a ride. I got on the back, and he went around the city on his goddamn bike, and I wished I never met him. But as I got to talking to him, I said, this guy's it. I realized it wasn't a matter of could he or would he. He was it. I called Steinbeck up and I said, I found a guy who might not be a great actor, but he is Cal. Is that important? Steinbeck said, If he's it, send him up. So I sent Jimmy to meet John, and John said, I don't like the guy, but he's Cal. He's the guy. Kazan already knew of James Dean, having first seen him at the actor's studio, where the director initially was not impressed by what he understood to be Dean's morose, prideful attitude. But as Kazan would come to learn, the character of Cal Trask, the angst-riddled, lonely young man with two absent parents who desperately longed for his father's approval, was an exact mirror of James Dean's life. Dean's friend and accredited biographer, William Bast, said of the part of Cal, "...it was a role that was created for Jimmy practically, not intentionally, but this was James Dean." The story embodied his relationship with his father, It utilized his isolation from the rest of the world, the perversity of his perspective, his humor, his need for love. It was as though you rewrote his biography. Same person, slightly different story. Born in Marion, Indiana on February 8, 1931, James Byron Dean's father, Winton, gave up farming and moved the family to Santa Monica, where he began working as a dental technician. Jimmy was born during one of the worst years of the Great Depression, but the Deans were much better off than most due to Winton's good job and steady paycheck. Young Jimmy was very close to his mother, Mildred, who instilled in him a love for the arts. As an only child, Jimmy received all of his mother's love and attention. Mildred would read her favorite poems to her son, signing him up for dancing lessons and even putting on plays with him in their home. In 1938, when Jimmy was just seven years old, his mother began rapidly losing weight and complaining of unbearable stomach pains. On July 14, 1940, Mildred lost her battle with uterine cancer at just 29 years old. Jimmy, only nine years old at the time, was absolutely devastated by the loss of his mother, later saying, My mother died on me when I was nine years old. What did she expect me to do? Do it all alone? Both unable and unwilling to look after his son on his own, Winton made arrangements for Jimmy to move back to Indiana to live on the farm of his aunt and uncle, Hortense and Marcus Winslow. Jimmy and his grandmother took a train to Indiana, which carried Mildred's coffin in the baggage car. At each stop, Jimmy would run back to check that his mother's remains were still there. Jimmy would spend the rest of his childhood and academic career in Indiana, where he was a popular student who did well in school and was active in extracurriculars, including the varsity basketball and baseball teams, drama club, and public speaking competitions. After high school, he moved back to California to attend Santa Monica College, where he enrolled as a pre-law student and lived with his father and stepmother, Ethel. He eventually transferred to UCLA and changed his major to drama. Making the decision to pursue his first love, the arts, would create a rift in the relationship between Jimmy and Winted, and the two became estranged. Bast called Dean's relationship with his father inarticulate, as the two barely spoke to one another. He tried so hard to reach his father, to make some contact with the man who wasn't able, and it was sad. During his time at UCLA, Jimmy beat out 349 other actors for the role of Malcolm in Macbeth. He would not graduate from college. He dropped out in January 1951 in order to pursue acting full-time. He made his first television appearance in a Pepsi commercial, for which he was paid $30, followed by the role of the Apostle John in the Easter TV special, Hill Number 1. As for his film career dean landed ancillary walk on parts in 1951's fixed bayonets and sailor beware and has anybody seen my gal from 1952 the latter film starred rock hudson who dean would share the screen with just a few years later in what would be his final film giant in between parts dean worked at the cbs studios parking lot as a valet and as an attendant in a drugstore in 1951 tired of the misadventures of los angeles Jimmy moved to New York to try his luck as a stage actor. He got a job testing out the games for the popular competition show Beat the Clock, but was fired soon afterward for completing the tasks too quickly. He appeared in a string of forgettable television specials while studying method acting under Lee Strasberg at the Actors' Studio. In a letter to his family back in Fairmont, Indiana, Dean called the Actors' Studio "...the greatest school of the theater." It houses great people like Marlon Brando and Eli Wallach. Very few people get into it. It is the best thing that can happen to an actor. Dean eventually landed a role in the 1952 theater production See the Jaguar, where he played a 16-year-old boy whose mother kept him locked in a cage his whole life. The play was denounced by critics and would close after only five performances, but Dean received glowing praise. One reviewer called him, overwhelming as the boy, and played the part with sweetness and naivete that made his tortures significantly poignant. He adds an extraordinary performance in an almost impossible role. His next part was in the Broadway play The Immoralist*, which co-starred Geraldine Page and Louis Jourdan. Dean was cast as Bachir, the Arab boyfriend of Jourdan's closeted homosexual archaeologist, Michel. Dean was unhappy in the play, especially when the director was changed while rehearsals were still underway, rewriting the script and considerably cutting Dean's part. When Kazan spotted him in the play and began talking to Dean about starring in his next film, Dean not only saw this as an opportunity to get out of the immoralist, but also as his chance to break into the movies. After all, it was Kazan who had given us Marlon Brando, an acting hero of Dean's. Kazan felt that Dean was right for the role— but he wasn't ready to offer it to him just yet. The part of Cal Trask had boiled down to two young, handsome, unknown actors, James Dean and Paul Newman. Newman was shortlisted for the role of Cal and even screen-tested alongside James Dean, who was six years Newman's junior. In the screen test, which is now widely available online, Dean and Newman engage in playful banter back and forth in between looking into The camera. What sets the two handsome, fair-haired, blue-eyed actors apart is their demeanor. Newman appears relaxed with fixed animations, while a pulsating energy emanates from Dean, like a tempest on the horizon. Dean and newcomer Richard Davalos were eventually cast as the Trask brothers, and East of Eden would be the big-screen debut for both of them. Davalos had been an usher at a movie theater in New York before landing the role opposite Dean, and the two of them looked enough alike that it would be easy for audiences to see them as fraternal twins. Newman may have lost out on the role of Cal Trask, but the actor would get his big break the following year due to a tragic turn of events. Newman would star in Somebody Up There Likes Me, a film about the life of boxer Rocky Graziano, which was intended to be James Dean's fourth film. Dean would tragically die in a car accident seven months after the premiere of East of Eden at just 24 years old, after which the role was given to Newman. Newman's co-star would be Angeli. More on her later. On opening night of The Immoralist, Dean gave the producers his two weeks' notice. Geraldine Page reportedly screamed at one producer, "'How could you let pure gold walk out on you like that?' When asked about his departure... Dean would only say, I'm taken care of. Of his decision to cast James Dean as Cal, Kazan would later say, it was the most apt piece of casting I've ever done in my life. Warner Brothers officially announced his casting on March 6, 1954, and James Dean prepared to leave New York City to once again return to Los Angeles, where the rest, as the saying goes, is history. Just before heading out to Los Angeles, Dean met with his soon-to-be co-star, Julie Harris, for a screen test. It was really just to see us together, Harris remembered. At one point, I rested my chin on my hands and Jimmy said, Why do you do that? Do you think you look too old? I thought, You son of a bitch. But I didn't say that. I said, Well, I am older than you. And from there on, it got into the back of my head that I knew that this was a device to keep you off guard so that everything was alive. Kazan and Dean would leave for Los Angeles together. I picked him up in a car, and he had his clothes in a paper bag, said the director. He'd never been on an airplane before. He kept looking down over the side of the plane, just watching the ground. He was totally innocent. It was all new to him. When Kazan first brought Dean to the Warner Brothers' lot... No one knew what to make of the actor. The crew thought he was the stand-in, he remembered, standing in for whoever was going to play the lead. I had to explain to them that this was the boy who was going to be the star of the movie. Before the production began, Kazan and Dean went to visit Winton in Los Angeles. This was a habit of Kazan's, who tried to learn as much as he could about the personal lives and backgrounds of his actors in preparation for his projects. Kazan sat back and observed the estranged father and son. In Boulevard of Broken Dreams, The Life, Times, and Legend of James Dean, author Paul Alexander writes, Certainly Jimmy was showing off the famous director to let his father know that, yes, he had finally made it as an actor. But Winton wasn't impressed. Cold and distant, he appeared almost to resent the fact that Jimmy had stopped by to see him. From his point of view as a director... Kazan could not have been more pleased. Kazan would say of the dean's reunion, Obviously there was a strong tension between the two, and it was not friendly. I sensed the father disliked the son. As I got to know his father, as I got to know his family, I learned that Jimmy had been, in fact, twisted by the denial of love. Kazan realized that Jimmy's relationship with Winton was the source of the anger and frustration deep within him two traits that were crucial elements of Caltrask. The finishing touches of the film's pre-production were falling into place. James Dean signed his studio contract on April 7th and would buy his first sports car within a month. In May, Paul Osborne completed the final draft of the script after two years of development. Once East of Eden moved out of the pre-production phase, Steinbeck distanced himself from the set. "'as he did not want to be regarded "'as an intimidating, looming presence "'to the cast and crew. "'He'd bend over backwards to help "'if he thought you were going in the right direction, "'and he thought Kazan was,' "'said the author's son, Tom. "'They worked very well together. "'Filming began at the end of May "'and would last for ten weeks. "'Kazan had sent James Dean to Palm Springs "'so that the actor would have time "'to get a tan and put on some weight "'to make him look like an authentic farm boy. "'Ironic,' since Dean actually had grown up on a farm. During that time, Dean would drink a pint of cream a day while sitting out in the sun to work on his tan, two daunting tasks that the actor reportedly hated having to do. To foster an authentic, brotherly relationship between Dean and Davalos, Kazan arranged for the two young men to live together. "'Jimmy and I got very close,' said Davalos." We shared a one-bedroom apartment over the drugstore across the street from Warner Brothers. We were Cal and Aaron to the teeth. It crept into our social life. He would do something, and I would reject him, and he would follow me down the street about 20 paces behind. East of Eden would be two career firsts for Kazan. It was to be his first full-color picture and his first to be filmed in the new Cinemascope format the anamorphic lens technology that had only been in use for about two years by this time. Cinemascope proved to be a challenge for Kazan, who was initially against its use as he felt that it wouldn't work in a family drama, where the horizontal frame was really only useful for scenes of crowds or landscapes and made close-up shots difficult. With the help of cinematographer Ted McCord, Kazan toyed with the technology that was forced upon him by the studio, figuring out the best ways to shoot each scene. They found that close-ups in Cinemascope gave off the appearance of curvature at the sides of the screen, but Kazan didn't mind the distortion and decided to make use of it. McCord suggested angling the camera with a slight tilt in certain shots, seeing as they were already working with distorted footage. This technique was used more than once in the film, most notably during a heavy scene at the dinner table with Cal and Adam, allowing the audience to feel the queasiness and unease that the characters were experiencing. Kazan was most proud of his use of cinemascope in the shot of the train pulling away with Adam's lettuce. The camera captures the train as it is obscured by a station, reappearing smaller as it continues on in the direction of the faraway mountains. It's a perfect shot because it shows that their hope is going off, Kazan explained. It's sentimental and still emotional. On May 27th, the production assembled on location in Mendocino, disguised as Monterey, to shoot exterior shots of the town near and around Kate's brothel. Just before they were about to shoot the interior scenes of Cal at the brothel, Kazan grabbed Dean in a headlock and kept him there until he was ready to start filming. Kazan called action and threw Dean onto the set, feeling that this was the best way to get the angry and confused look Cal has upon seeing his mother. James Dean did not appreciate this technique, reportedly complaining to the crew. He doesn't think I can act, so he has to wrestle me around. Dean took his method acting very seriously, going so far as to hold his pee all day to make himself as uncomfortable as possible for one of his scenes with Julie Harris, refusing to relieve himself until after the scene had been completed. You never knew what was coming, said Harris. You had to listen, watch. You had to be there. Like Brando... Dean's acting was more realistic than the smooth delivery style of the actors and actresses who would come up through the studio system. In an interview for the Special Collector Edition DVD of East of Eden, Kazan said that while he did not think of Dean as a great actor at the time, he knew that he was perfect for Cal and admitted that Dean would do anything to be good. He was way open. Dean's deep rooted personal pain is physically noticeable in his performance. "'manifesting in the contorted body language he displays on screen. "'It was psychotic,' Kazan said. "'He was exactly like the people you see in insane asylums.' "'Early on in the film, "'when Cal is dragged out of the brothel by one of Kate's goons, "'he cries with his face twisted in anguish, "'Talk to me, mother!' "'Knowing that Dean was undoubtedly channeling "'the pain of losing his own mother "'makes that moment all the more haunting.' Dean's method acting was so intense that it psychologically scarred Richard Davalos. The worst scene for me to do in the entire movie was when we have an argument and Cal hits me. Jimmy didn't really hit me, but it was so real, and I believed he hated me. I believed he did hit me, because it was real for him, too. I went off the set after the take and cried for about four hours. Julie Harris had to come over and try to calm me down. Jimmy wasn't easy to work with because it was all new to him, Kazan said. But Julie Harris was very helpful because she was terribly patient and understanding. When Jimmy sensed affection and understanding and patience, he got awfully good. Davalos did credit Dean with helping him get into the role of Aaron, and the two of them actually started to act like brothers. When recalling how Dean hated wearing the heavy makeup, Davalos said, Every morning we would run to the john and rub our makeup off. Jimmy taught me how to rub our faces here and there so they wouldn't notice. I don't think we had any makeup on at the end of the day. Two weeks after the shoot in Mendocino, on June 4th, the company moved to Salinas Valley to film additional outdoor scenes, as well as the scenes involving the bean field. Kazan had to coordinate with a local farmer to get the shots he needed of the field, ensuring that the crops were three inches high so they would show on camera. The sprouts were actually mustard plants and needed to be constantly replanted as the bright movie lights would cause them to wilt. The running dance Dean does during this scene was the actor's idea, a contribution that Kazan loved so much that he recalled planting a kiss on Dean as soon as they had finished shooting it. Dean was actually like a kid, the director said, noting that not even the great Brando himself could pull off that kind of frivolity. Speaking of Brando... Much to Dean's awe, the actor made a surprise visit to the set one day to see Kazan. Marlon was very gracious to Jimmy, who was so adoring that he seemed shrunken and twisted, Kazan would later say of their meeting. A photograph exists of the day Brando visited, showing Kazan with an arm on the shoulder of a smiling Brando, who was pressed up against a beaming Julie Harris. Next to Harris is a shell-shocked James Dean his jaw clenched, no doubt struggling to maintain his composure. On June 12th, the production relocated to the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, where a full-scale amusement park had been built for a key scene where Abra finally comes to terms with her feelings for Cal. Rather than construct a fake Ferris wheel and use the rear projection technique that was standard practice at the time, Kazan erected a real one that he rented from a carnival. With the help of an extra crane on loan from Disney, Kazan was able to get lights, equipment, and crew members up to the full height of the Ferris wheel, allowing him to film Dean and Harris in a car at the very top. Despite being perfectly suited for the role, many on set claimed that James Dean was often difficult to work with and uncooperative, sometimes refusing to come out of his dressing room or talk to anyone if the conversation wasn't about the film. Kazan and cast members recalled that Dean would often forget his lines and show up to set unprepared for his scenes. It was not uncommon for Dean to make up his own dialogue on the spot, and because he was always so emotionally powerful, Kazan ended up using the footage. Dean would heavily improvise his performance, going off-script and using his body language to do the talking for him, as is shown in Cal's depraved contortions when riding atop the boxcar and in the running dance he does through the bean field. Raymond Massey, however, was not impressed by Dean, who he found unprofessional. Years later, Massey would say of his young co-star, "'A rebel at heart, he approached everything with a chip on his shoulder. Jimmy never knew his lines before he walked on the set, rarely had command of them when the camera rolled, and even if he had was often inaudible.'" Simple technicalities, such as moving on cue and finding his marks, were beneath his consideration. According to William Bast, Raymond Massey didn't understand James Dean for one moment, or anything about him, or want to understand anything about him. As Tom Steinbeck recalled, Ray Massey looked down his nose at everybody. Both Dean and Kazan were not fond of Massey and Kazan referred to the actor as a stiff who had only one color. Kazan would encourage Dean to provoke Massey as the real tension that was building between the two of them was infusing their performances with perfect results. The parallels between Dean's relationship with his own father and the relationship between Cal and Adam were not lost on Dean. How easy it was to pick that up and use it and Jimmy used it Because that was the backbone of the story, said William Bast. Cast members recalled Dean breaking down in tears on more than one occasion, and Kazan always allowed him to feel what he needed to before returning to set. Jimmy was always improvising, and he cried a lot during the movie, Davalos recalled. Most of the time, Kazan would just let him go through with it, and then carry on with the scene. Kazan did film, and leave in, one of Dean's real breakdowns. Cal's reaction to Adam's rejection of the money. In the script, it says that Cal was supposed to, quote, stare at Adam slowly as though in a trance, walk over and pick up the money, then give a loud, choking, agonizing scream and run out of the room. Instead, Dean pulled Massey in for a desperate, uncomfortable hug, and the shocked Massey called out, Cal! 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 because he didn't know what else to do. Dean's pained reaction to Adam's rejection was filled with a visceral poignancy the likes of which had never been shown on screen before. Massey's rigid, awkward posture as Dean has his arms around his neck works perfectly in the moment, lending itself to Adam's inability to connect with his son. Dean's penchant for pissing off the Oxford-educated Massey came to a head during the scene where Adam and Cal get into a heated dispute over what Adam perceives as Cal's disrespectful manner of reading aloud from the Bible. Unbeknownst to Massey, Kazan had urged Dean to read the passages interlaced with vile curse words and sexually offensive language whenever the camera was on Massey for his reaction shots. "'The Lord is my shepherd,' "'I shall not suck cock. Fuck you, shit piss,' Dean said." Crew members recalled a furious Massey nearly turning purple as he jumped up from the table, shouting at Kazan, "'I will not play with such a person,' and threatening to call his attorneys." Kazan, however, felt that he had perfectly captured the heightened anger that the scene called for. This was one of the scenes where McCord and Kazan had tilted the camera, making the tension and anxiety in the room palpable for the audience. Massey had even less patience with Dean's penchant for going off script, yelling to Kazan on more than one occasion, He's not saying the lines! I would say, All right, I'll get him to say the lines, and then I'd let Jimmy do it the way he wanted because it irritated Raymond Massey, Kazan would later admit. Do you think I would do anything to stop that antagonism? No, I increased it. It was essential to their relationship with each other. Absolute hatred, which is what Ray Massey felt for Jimmy Dean and what Jimmy Dean felt for Ray Massey. That's precious. You can't get that. No director can get that. You hopefully arouse it. You awaken something that's there by some tactic or another. I'm sure he respected Raymond Massey, said Julie Harris. But he was always trying to make Raymond upset and flustered, just for the fun of it. Despite the antagonization that was condoned at his expense, Massey would later say that his role in the film was one of the best characters he had ever played, one of the few three-dimensional parts to come his way. As hype around the film grew, the attention Dean was getting had started to go to the actor's head. It was getting around that the kid on East of Eden was going to make it big, said Kazan. Jimmy heard the news and the first thing I noticed was that he was being rude to our little wardrobe man. I stopped that quickly. Dean's temperamental behavior had become a grave concern of Kazan's. He thought having Dean and Davalos live together would keep Dean in line, but when that did nothing to slow his star down, Kazan arranged for he and Dean to be moved to adjoining dressing rooms on the Warner Brothers lot so that he could keep watch over him. The star dressing rooms were rather luxurious, Kazan said. We both had these two-room apartments with a toilet and a place to cook. I kept my eye on him, night and day. This arrangement proved to be convenient when shooting the interior scenes, which were filmed on nearby sound stages. When Jack Warner heard that Dean later refused to move out of the dressing room, the executive declared, That little bastard better get out of there or else. Dean would later name his ill-fated, poor spider, Little Bastard. Even with his antics, Kazan couldn't help but like James Dean. You can't not like a guy with that much pain in him. You know how a dog will be mean and maul at you, and then you pat him, and he's all over you with affection? That's the way Dean was. He reminded me of Tom Sawyer, said Julie Harris. A guy who would always get you into the terrible scrapes, but it was all like, well, what was life for? In the interest of getting Dean's name into the papers and generating publicity for both their hot new star and the film, Warner Brothers wanted Jimmy to be seen around town with a pretty young actress to establish his image as a leading man. Dean was paired with up-and-coming Italian starlet Pier Angeli, who was filming the Silver Chalice on one of the adjacent lots at the Warner Studio. What was intended to be a transactional, at best platonic relationship, turned into a love affair for the two young stars. We had been filming maybe three or four weeks, Julie Harris recalled, and Jimmy said to me, I want to show you something. He pulled out of his pocket a gold-enameled Egyptian charm which he would wear on a chain, and it opened up and inside was a lock of her hair from the day they first met. When he showed it to me, He was moved to tears, and he said that he was so happy that he had never experienced anything like this feeling he felt for her. There was a kind of warmth, a glow about him when you saw them together, when he talked about her. Dean and Angelie were photographed at industry events and satisfied their employers by getting their names into the papers, but they were also often seen spending time together when they weren't working. One gossip column quoted Angelie as saying at the time, Jimmy is different. He loves music. He loves it from the heart the way I do. We have so much to talk about. It's wonderful to have such an understanding. Kazan would recall hearing the two making love from inside Dean's dressing room. Davolo said that Dean was definitely in love with Angeli and even wanted to marry her, and was willing to allow their children to be raised Catholic to appease Anjali's mother, who steadfastly opposed the relationship. When questioned about his relationship with Anjali, one reporter quoted Dean as saying, "'I can talk to her. She understands. "'Nothing messy, just an easy sort of friendly thing. "'I respect her. She's untouchable. "'She's the kind of girl you put on a shelf and look at. "'Anyway, her old lady doesn't like me. "'Can't say I blame her.'" A few months into their courtship, Dean briefly returned to New York. During his absence, Angelie shockingly announced her engagement to Vic Damone, the latest hot commodity from MGM, and, most importantly to her mother, both a fellow Roman Catholic and an Italian. The two were married in November 1954, only a month after they were engaged. James Dean was blindsided. One gossip magazine at the time reported that a crestfallen Dean sat on his motorcycle outside the church during their ceremony, distractingly revving the engine the entire time. Dean would later deny the story. Fourteen years after their breakup, Angelie would fondly recall her relationship with Dean to the National Enquirer. We would talk about ourselves and about our problems, about the movies and acting, about life and life after death, We had a complete understanding of each other. We were like Romeo and Juliet, together and inseparable. We loved each other so much we just wanted to walk together into the sea holding hands because we knew then that we would always be together. It wasn't that we wanted to commit suicide. We loved our life, and it was just that we wanted to be that close to each other always. We didn't have to be seen together at film premieres or nightclubs. We didn't need to be in the gossip columns or be seen at the big Hollywood parties. We were like kids together, and that's the way we both liked it. We were young and we wanted to enjoy life together, and we did. It was all so innocent and so empathetic. Over the years... Dean biographers have questioned the validity of his relationship with Angeli, often chalking it up to nothing more than a publicity stunt, with some speculating that the relationship was used as a cover for Dean's alleged homosexuality. Near the end of her life, Angeli, who divorced Damone after four years of marriage and her second husband, Italian composer Armando Trovajoli after seven, would tell friends that Dean was the love of her life. She would die of an overdose of sleeping pills in September 1971 at the age of 39. The 10-week shoot of East of Eden wrapped on August 9th. James Dean returned to New York, two months away from Angelie ending their affair. As the picture entered post-production that October, Warner Brothers extended Dean's contract, though he had not yet signed on to any other projects. By the end of production, Kazan's opinion of Dean as an actor had drastically changed. God, he gave everything he had in that film. He didn't hold anything back. Jimmy Dean had violence in him. He had hunger within him. And he was himself and the boy that he played in the film. At the very end of shooting, the last few days, you felt that a star was going to be born. Everybody smelled it all the publicity people began to hang around him. Only a few years ago, James Dean was a farm boy in Fairmont, Indiana, reads his very first studio biography. Today he is farming again, but this time in his starring role of Cal in East of Eden, Warner Brothers' cinemascope filming of the John Steinbeck novel. In this, his picture debut, Dean is being acclaimed as one of the brightest acting finds in many years. The world premiere of East of Eden was held at New York's Astor Theater on March 9, 1955 and served as a fundraiser for the Actors Studio, which had just recently purchased an old Greek church for their headquarters and needed money for repairs and upkeep. Tickets were $150 each, equivalent to almost $1,500 today. Jack Warner arranged for the Actors Studio to receive all of the proceeds from the premiere, which included a screening of the film and a star-studded after-party. Celebrity usherettes were on hand to show guests to their seats in the packed theater. Marlena Dietrich, Carol Channing, Ava Marie Saint, Anita Luz, Jane Meadows, and Marilyn Monroe. At the lavish after-party, the event's organizer had Carol Channing, who originated the role of Lorelei Lee in *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes on Broadway, performed the famous Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend number after Marilyn refused. Also at the party was the relatively unknown Sammy Davis Jr., who had just lost his left eye in a car accident four months earlier. Davis stole the show and would become a household name just a year later when he made his Broadway debut in Mr. Wonderful. John Steinbeck, Ilya Kazan, Richard Davalos, Joe Van Fleet, Julie Harris, and Raymond Massey were all in attendance. However, notably absent from the glamorous premiere was the film star. Instead, James Dean, who had already gone with some friends to see the film ahead of the premiere, skipped out on the gala and returned to Fairmont to see Aunt Hortense and Uncle Marcus before heading back to Hollywood. Why should I go, Dean reportedly told a friend. I know I was good, and having people tell me so would only embarrass me. The film was an instant hit upon its release on April 10, 1955, earning $5 million at the box office, making it the 10th highest-grossing film of the year. James Dean quickly became a favorite with teenage moviegoers. It was more than his obvious good looks. There was something about his raw, Unbridled vulnerability and contorted expressions that resonated with them. As Kazan would say of Dean as Cal, certainly there was never such a hero before. Dean was a far cry from the squeaky clean Andy Hardy character played by Mickey Rooney. Here was, finally, an accurate depiction of the white American youth, moody and misunderstood. As Tom Steinbeck said of Dean's performance, he really compresses the amount of frustration and loss and anger, the kind of thing you feel when you're 16, 17 years old. Everybody's betrayed me. But then doing this Richard the Third thing, if they're going to call me a villain, then I'll be a big villain, overreacting and everything, in his constant search to be accepted by the one person he loves most in the world. Unbeknownst to the legions of devoted young fans that were lining up outside movie theaters in Los Angeles to see their new hero, James Dean would drive past to marvel at the Long Lines. This would be the only measure of his fame that Dean would ever be privy to. He would not live to see his other two films released. Like the book from which the film derived, it was commercially successful, but critics were divided. Julie Harris, Richard Davalos, Raymond Massey, and Joe Van Fleet were rarely discussed, with critics instead devoting much of their analysis to James Dean. Despite his newfound adoration from young moviegoers, Dean would not win over many film critics, and his detractors found his acting cringeworthy and melodramatic. Several outlets not only compared Dean to Marlon Brando, but accused him of imitating the actor altogether. As Bosley Crowther of the New York Times wrote, "...in one respect, it is brilliant." The use that Mr. Kazan has made of cinemascope and color in capturing expanse and mood in his California is almost beyond compare. Why there should be a lack of harmony between Adam and Cal is not clear. Neither is it apparent why they are reconciled at the end. The solution is arbitrary, as is most of the plotting of this film. The stubborn fact is that the people who move about in his film are not sufficiently well-established to give point to the anguish through which they go, and the demonstrations of their torment are perceptibly stylized and grotesque. This is especially true of James Dean in the role of the cranky and confused Cal. This young actor, who is here doing his first big-screen stint, is a mass of histrionic gingerbread. He scuffs his feet, he whirls, he pouts, he sputters, he leans against walls, he rolls his eyes, he swallows his words, all like Marlon Brando. Never have we seen a performer so clearly follow another's style. Mr. Kazan should be spanked for permitting him to do such a sophomoric thing. Whatever there might be of reasonable torment in this youngster is buried beneath the clumsy display. The Brando comparisons were inevitable. In an interview with an Indiana newspaper, Dean said, I am not disturbed by the comparison, nor am I flattered. However, it's true that I am constantly reminding people of Brando. People discover resemblances. We are both from farms, dress as we please, ride motorcycles, and work for Elia Kazan. As an actor, I have no desire to behave like Brando, and I don't attempt to. Nevertheless, It is very difficult not to be impressed by a highly successful actor, but that's as far as it goes. Method acting was still relatively new in the 1950s, and critics had grown accustomed to the two-dimensional technique that was commonly practiced by actors and actresses at the time, Brando's performance in A Streetcar Named Desire was unlike anything that had ever been on a movie screen, so it's understandable that critics would compare any other actor who turned in a raw, emotionally charged performance up against the actor with whom they had come to associate this style of performing. Dean's former acting coach, Lee Strasberg, denounced their professional resemblance. Never. They're two totally different personalities— What was common at the time was the characters they played. They brought to the stage what we call today the anti-hero, the person who cannot express himself, the person who was not a hero in the ordinary sense of the word. Kenneth Kendall, a sculptor and friend of Dean's, said of the comparisons to Brando, James Dean was said to be another Marlon Brando, which isn't true at all. Marlon is heavy as lead compared to Jimmy. Jimmy's mercurial and light and dancing all over the place. That's not Marlon Brando at all. In a piece for Library of America, film historian Sheila O'Malley writes of Dean, A vulnerable leading man was hugely destabilizing to the idea of masculinity and what it should look like. But Brando was all dynamic power and expression, and Dean was all neuroses and repression. It's impossible to picture James Dean as Stanley in A Streetcar Named Desire, and it's hard to picture Brando as Cal. When one reporter asked Dean how he felt about the comparisons to Brando, Dean replied, How do you like being compared to Walter Winchell? Dean's friend Kenneth Kendall believes that, had James Dean lived, Brando would have had some stiff competition. We lost two great actors in that crash, James Dean and Marlon Brando. Because if James Dean had been alive, Marlon wouldn't have let him walk the town away from him. We would have seen a lot more out of Brando than we did. He was relaxed in his position. The most important review James Dean would get was in Modern Screen magazine, which tracked down his father, Winton, for a comment. For some reason, the piece was not printed until August 1955, months after Winton's interview and just a few weeks shy of Jimmy's death. The odds that Jimmy read or even knew about the article before he passed are slim. The elder Dean said of his son, My Jim is a tough boy to understand. At least he is for me, but maybe that's because I don't understand actors, and he's always wanted to become one. Another reason is that we were separated for a long period of time, from when he was nine until he was 18. Those are important, formative years when a boy and his father usually become close friends. Jim and I, well, we've never had that closeness. It's nobody's fault, really, just circumstances. I didn't know what to do. How do you tell an eight-year-old boy his mother is going to die? I tried. In my own stumbling way, I tried to prepare Jim for it. Nowadays... He lives in a world we don't understand too well, the actor's world. We don't see too much of him, but he's a good boy, my Jim. A good boy, and I'm very proud of him. Not easy to understand, but he's all man, and he'll make his mark. Mind you, my boy will make his mark. By award season, James Dean was dead. East of Eden received four Academy Award nominations. Best Director, Best Screenplay for Osborne, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Joe Van Fleet and the first ever posthumous nomination in an acting category for James Dean as Best Actor. The ceremony was held on March 21, 1956, six months after Dean's car crash. Joe Van Fleet was the sole winner of East of Eden's nominations. At the Golden Globes one month earlier, the film took home two awards. Best Picture, Drama, and a posthumous special achievement award for James Dean. In his 1999 autobiography, Kazan wrote, I have noticed about people with mysterious gifts. In many cases, a wound has been inflicted early in life, which impels the person to strive harder or makes him or her extra sensitive. These are our heroes, those who have overcome what the rest of the race yields to with self-pity and many excuses. Their precious gifts for which they paid in pain, have made me successful. I've relied on their talent. It's the essence of what I've needed most. James Dean's mysterious gift was his ability to channel his vulnerability and pain unlike any other actor before him. The utter agony on Cal's face when Adam rejects the money is painful to watch. We experience his hurt and embarrassment right along with him. Where Dean was every misunderstood youth personified, Raymond Massey was every adult who just didn't understand what was going on with kids in those days. Interestingly enough, John Steinbeck never set out to champion the theme of teenage rebellion, and would later condemn it altogether in his 1966 short story collection, America and Americans, writing, "'The whole American approach to the young has extended adolescence far into the future,' so that very many Americans have never and can never become adults. In his book, James Dean, the Mutant King, David Dalton writes, Kazan used Dean to embody the theme of rebellion and exploited Jimmy to make a radical point. Cal as Cain as juvenile delinquent. Kazan thereby made Jimmy a social weapon. Dean resonated with teenage moviegoers at the time who saw in him someone that was standing up against the older generations that didn't understand them. He became the prototype for these moody, misunderstood adolescents. Dean's performance, combined with the film's theme of rebellion, struck a nerve with the youngsters who were looking to distance themselves from their parents' generation. In fact, prior to the 1950s, The word teenager was rarely used. Finally, this emerging generation of angsty young folks had a name for themselves. Theirs was the first generation that didn't have to work unless they wanted to. Their parents and grandparents had survived the Great Depression, where anyone who could get a job or earn a living absolutely had to do so, regardless of their age. But the 50s was a time of economic prosperity for middle-class white Americans, affording their children less responsibility and more time to socialize with friends, as well as extra funds to buy their own clothes, records, and to go to the movies. It was not uncommon for kids to have their own cars, allowing them more independence and freedom to act on their own authority. At the time of East of Eden's release... Juvenile delinquency was considered a serious threat in Eisenhower's puritanical America. The first taste of big-screen teen rebellion came from Marlon Brando in 1953's The Wild One, where as Johnny, the leader of a biker gang, he replies, what do you got, when asked what it is he is rebelling against. A year later, while production was underway on East of Eden, A teenage truck driver from Tupelo, Mississippi, would step into a booth at Sun Records in Memphis and record his first song. The juvenile delinquency movement was in full swing, and whether he realized it or not, James Dean was at the forefront from the very beginning. Pop culture historians have long attributed Dean's influence to the popularity of rock and roll at the time. As one of the first figures to realistically convey the angst and rebellion teenagers were feeling, Dean's image was right in line with rock and roll. That truck driver I mentioned earlier, better known today as Elvis Presley, was a huge James Dean fan and had even expressed his desire to have a career much like the late actors. Brando, Dean, and Presley embodied the bad boy archetype the effects of which gave restless young men examples of the kind of stars they wanted to emulate, and their unrestrained sexuality provided young women with figures to openly lust after, two values that were not in line with the good, clean wholesomeness that had been the status quo of the decade. Together, the three of them personified the pent-up frustrations of young white Americans who sought to have beliefs and identities separate from their parents. In a 1956 interview with Parade magazine, Presley weighed in on their popularity. I've made a study of Marlon Brando, and I've made a study of poor Jimmy Dean. I've made a study of myself, and I know why girls, at least the young uns, go for us. We're sullen, we're brooding, we're something of a menace. I don't understand it exactly, but that's what girls like in men. I don't know anything about Hollywood, But I know you can't be sexy if you smile. You can't be a rebel if you grin. Sixty-five years after its release, East of Eden and James Dean's performance is still a marvel to watch. No other actor had ever accurately portrayed the confusion, insecurity, and loneliness that comes with being a young adult as acutely as he did. A 2017 profile from the Library of America called James Dean as Cal, quote, a casting choice that changed American culture forever. Hollywood columnist Joe Himes said Dean was one of the rare stars, like Rock Hudson and Montgomery Clift, that both men and women found sexy. In his film debut, James Dean became the poster boy for teen angst a legend that would be cemented further with his next role, the lead in Nicholas Ray's Rebel Without a Cause. James Dean's 16-month-long movie career would spawn just three films, each of which have made the American Film Institute's list of the 400 best American movies. To this day, he is the only actor to receive two posthumous Oscar nominations, the first for East of Eden, and the second for his final film, Giant. I loved him. I looked forward to our scenes together, Julie Harris would say of Dean decades later. I admired him, and I loved his talent. He was quite a charismatic human being and had a mixture of sexual attraction and great innocence, the same as Marilyn Monroe. I think that was their appeal, that they were curiously untouched by their sexuality and remained innocent. I likened Jimmy to a kind of star, or a comet that fell through the sky and everybody still talks about. He had that enormous appeal, that magic. Richard Davilo said, We were so into the roles, me and Jimmy, it took me two years to get over that part. By all accounts, Steinbeck was thrilled with the film, telling one reporter, I think it'll be a classic. In a 1971 interview, Kazan would say of the movie, This was a very personal film, one of the most personal I've ever made. East of Eden was for me a kind of self-defense. It was about people not understanding me. It was about my relationship with my father, how he disapproved of me. One hates one's father, one rebels against him. Finally, one cares for him, one recovers oneself, one understands him, one forgives him, and one says to oneself, yes, he is like that. One is no longer afraid of him. One has accepted him. East of Eden explored the notions of self-destructive behaviors and generational curses and our struggles for acceptance. As writer David Dalton says, East of Eden exposed the real issue of Cain's plight. No sacrifice to the past will alter the future, and nothing good can ever come of appeasement toward something in which you cannot believe the film is also about accepting responsibility for your actions. Cal comes to accept Adam by the end of the picture and acknowledges his role in both Aaron and Adam's fates and chooses to try to be there for his father now that Adam needs him. Every generation has to relearn these lessons again and again about forgiveness and about compassion and about looking for love that's not there, said Tom Steinbeck. As Kazan said, I believe the film's conclusion is that If your parents raised you wrong, you should realize this as soon as possible and go your own way. The film adaptation of East of Eden may be a departure from the overall story of the novel, but its depiction of one young person's struggle for acceptance within their family is an idea that audiences, both then and now, can understand. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I'm up to date on all of your episodes. I listened to you on Valley of the Dolls when you were on with Paul a few weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, I love your work so far.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I've caught up with all of your podcasts. On Oh, thank you. Thank you. yeah, especially while driving, um, <laughs> driving my car, I just love like getting lost into another world, you know, and I, I'll show up to where I'm supposed to be. And then I find myself like, you know, ranting to my boyfriend or, you know, someone random like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, Marilyn Monroe and this, and then like, this happened, <laughs> and they're like, okay.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. So before we get into it, why don't we talk about where people can find you? I know you're on, um, you've are on. you got your show with Hidden Hollywood on YouTube, which I've talked mm-hmm. about on the show before, and your dark pinup on Instagram.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my uh, partner, uh, they run an Instagram called Vintage Shit Posting. You can find yeah. <laughs> that on Instagram. Uh, and it's been doing great. It's really taken off in the last couple of months for them. And then, of course, you can find Hidden Hollywood on YouTube. There's three episodes with more episodes coming out. Everything from uh, Natalie Wood to Marilyn Monroe, Thelma Todd, James Dean. And then there's a couple uh, podcasts. So if you're interested in podcasts, you can go to either of our Instagrams and find that from there. Um, and then a quick shout out. I do have a graphic design production assistant friend named Travis. And that is just Instagram Travis Monroe.
1: Okay, great. First let's start with where do you stand on James Dean? Because whatever I post about him on Instagram, I get people um who are really divided. Either they love him or they hate him or they just don't see what the fuss was all about with him. So where do you stand on him?
0: Well, I I guess I would have to wonder if we're asking where we stand on him as the legend or as the actual James Dean. And I think a lot of people have a reaction to the legend or myth of him. Right. Uh, and I, and that does intertwine with him too. those two things bleed together in and out. But sometimes I feel the kickback is more, uh, he's always talked about, I don't know why. Oh, this moody brooding brat, right. You know, or, um, even some people, maybe even people in general, they don't like some of his more improv work, such as in mm-hmm. rebel without a cause. You can really tell that he's luxuriating in some of the emotions and going off script. And for some people, they just, they don't want to see that. I think it's a bit indulgent. Right. Uh, But for me personally, I, I love, I love James Dean. I love, Mm -hmm. uh, it's just fascinating. I I do really connect to his kind of shades of cool, (laughs) shades of, of, of moodiness. And I, I connect with him too, of course, because we've all been teenagers and we've all i think we've all had those little tiny mini rebellion moments oh, i hate my small town and i hate my parents mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and
0: i know that that's very much generalizing him he was so
1: much more than that right right uh,
0: but to, yeah but to answer your question like i i love james dean but i can have a conversation whether it be positive or negative like like let's go mm-hmm. there
1: <laughs> and what was your introduction to james dean i know you're a big old hollywood fan as am i um you've been into it probably i'm going to say most of your life
0: absolutely right. probably yeah Uh, Old VHS tapes. I can remember (laughs) little Shirley Temple tapes Uh when I was a kid and loving it. Um, But I didn't truly start getting into it and reading full biographies on my own until I was 12, 13. Mm -hmm. Uh, Funny enough with James Dean, on one hand, I think he's one of those Americana icons everybody kind of knows about, kind of like Marilyn Monroe. Right. Uh, But when I most notably connected the dots with a face was actually there was, when I was young, maybe 11 Hillary Duff has a song called James Dean, okay. and yeah, <laughs> you know Disney Channel connection. And I was like, "Whoa, cool! Who's this guy?" And then it must have been a couple years later where I uh, connected the dots uh, when reading old Hollywood biographies on uh, uh, famous names, uh, and going from there. Yeah.
1: Oh, mine's even lamer than that. My mom used to buy me like the um <laughs> the special collector edition Barbie dolls that you couldn't play with. And oh, she would buy them even if I didn't want them. Like she didn't care about buying ones that pertain to my interest. She would just buy whichever ones she thought were cool. And she bought me the James Dean... I, I i don't know if to call it a barbie doll but it was the james De- mattel's version of james oh. dean that was my introduction to him i had no clue who he was i just had i didn't even really know what he looked like i just knew what the doll version of him looked like i oh must God. have been seven or eight years old at the time
0: yeah you still um, know where it is or
1: oh she probably has it now yeah i didn't take oh. them with me when i moved out That's cool. but uh but yeah. yeah that was my introduction to him was the mattel version mm-hmm. that i couldn't play with and he just looked so cool. He had the, It was the Rebel Without a Cause outfit, the red jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but then as I got older, naturally, you know, like you said, he's just a piece of Americana. He's pop culture. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you haven't seen his movies, um, everybody at least has some idea of who he is or at least what he looks like. Yeah. So while we're on the subject of James Dean, you and I discussed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you have an episode on James Dean and Marlon Brando and the alleged relationship, and you kind of debunked that. But mm-hmm. that you cannot have a discussion about the acting styles of either James Dean or Marlon Brando without the other one coming up.
0: Yeah, they're linked to each other. They right. are tied So,
1: so what, what can you tell us about that? And so Brando kind of rose to fame first. Mm-hmm. James Dean followed. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell us about that?
0: There's a few separate things that I'll touch on. And mm-hmm. one is sexuality uh, mm-hmm. and the general public assuming sexuality. Uh, number two is acting styles. And number three is image. It would be image and mm-hmm. brand. That ties in a little bit to sexuality. Uh, but so they're connected to each other mainly because their image is very similar. They are both the anti-hero. They are mm-hmm. both the guy that you you kind of question his motive and what's going through his mind. But ultimately, by the end of the film, you believe he's good. In styles of acting, Marlon Brando went to the actor's studio and studied, and he studied method acting, which for those who don't know, is the idea that realism and acting in the modern age is about fully believing what you are portraying. Whether you have to tap into an actual memory of someone you know dying to tap into that reality or something as simple as you know what it's like to be waiting for a train so you go wait for a train just to remind yourself you know at the Mm -hmm. station to play that scene
1: so it's drawing from your own life experiences to exactly inform your performance okay
0: and so marlon brando was one of the first to really do that so well and be such a a lead star doing it and the reason why i was so different is because acting before that was more formulaic it was more Mm -hmm. Um overacting, you know, especially in things like silent film and transitioning, you see that person like, oh yeah. no, he's dead, and just the right. over-the-top. Yeah. And so uh Marlon Brando did that, and then James Dean began acting in the same studio. Now, not at the same time, different times, mm-hmm. I believe. Marlon had graduated like at least five years earlier. And James Dean notably would say that Marlon Brando was a huge influence on him. And so that started, you know, connecting around in the press. Um We do, uh, not that it's necessarily relevant, or I guess I more so should say, like, not that it truly matters uh, what people's business is, I guess, in the bedroom, but uh, the general public started um, questioning Mm -hmm. their sexuality. Um, There were rumors about uh, bisexuality, sexual fluidity. And so they kind of became an almost wished for relationship. Right. I mean, it's just the two antiheroes, the two bad guys, the two—you know—they were completely shipped. Like there would be so much fanfic about that now. Like that's like yeah. it would be such a romance novella or something or blog post. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then they did actually end up meeting each other a couple times that we know of. Uh, and what's interesting about the James Dean and Marlon Brando connection, where people say like, "Oh, they had to have uh, had this whole secret relationship and it was mm-hmm. wild and blah blah blah," because. James Dean didn't even leave Indiana until a few, like two years prior to his death. Right. Um, and then he wasn't introduced that we know of to Marlon Brando until shortly before he passed. And, you know, he passed seven months, seven to nine months after his first film appeared in Hollywood. So right. the time span and the times he was traveling, like, it's just like, is it possible, plausible? Sure. But uh, yeah, such a deep connected relationship like that. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Yeah. And then um oh well and then there was a uh book that is a more so like queer commentary. Um it's it was first printed in nineteen fifty-nine in France. It was called Hollywood Babylon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was someone who had grown up around stages and around actors in Hollywood during the Golden Era. They found themselves a little bit short on cash. Uh they were writing on the side because he also was looking to direct some of his own movies, so on and so forth. So it was printed in France, and I believe 1965 it hit America, and there was a huge expose in there on James Dean and Marlon Brando and how he saw the autopsy uh, report that showed all of these cigarette burns and BDSM scars from Marlon Brando. and um, On James he- Dean? On James Dean, yeah. Wow. And then he said that he had heard, you know, he names various names talking about nobody huge, no A-listers, but like various things about their secret mm-hmm. love affair, and um, really spiced it up. It was like a three-page entry in that book, and after that came out, it it really became
1: you know, lore. <laughs> well, I think Brando did come out and say that he had bisexual relationships. I mean, I think he even he very famously himself. said yeah. he was with, yeah, with Richard Pryor, I think. Yeah. Um, But James Dean, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, they were saying about that about him, Uh, I think from, from the jump and, you know, they even speculated yeah. that his relationship with Pier Angeli was just a publicity stunt. Mm. Um, Do yeah. I think... Well, even- he very famously said, James Dean very famously said, I'm not going to go through life with one hand tied behind my back. So he didn't exactly say mm-hmm. that he wasn't bisexual, yeah. Um, but he also, he didn't, I mean, he didn't say he wasn't, but he didn't say that he was either. And I think that is, I think, how I have come to understand James Dean as a person is that whatever was there for the taking was his.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and even, um, but I don't think they were together. And one uh, big reason for this as well is on the set of Giant, James Dean's last film with Elizabeth Taylor, they grew very close. They were very close. And Elizabeth Taylor herself has, uh, in various interviews over the decades, talked about how he confided in her sexual assault he experienced as a child. Uh, what, from a some, priest or something? Uh, or was a teacher? I believe... I believe it was an authority figure who abused yeah, him. Yeah. And then that. he also talked about, yeah, different, uh, I believe there was one person he was dating in New York who he had to leave to come to Hollywood, who was first love and then, you know, just sharing various and also uh, different experiences he had with um, men and women. So my point being, I, I would tend to believe that Elizabeth Taylor would name drop Marlon Brando, you know, if
1: that was- <laughs> Right, woman. right, right, yeah. I mean, and she did work with him too, Brando. She worked with him. Was it Reflections on a Golden Eye? They did make a movie together so I'm sure yeah, if he, there was if there was dirt there if there was tea to spill he would have spilled it.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But now so
1: people have been trying to to lump James Dean and Marlon Brando as lovers for decades. But what do you say to those who yeah. say that Dean you know he bit off Brando's acting style that he was trying to be another Marlon Brando do I think oh. that he was inspired by him certainly I mean every young actor who came I, up after Brando I'm sure they they drew from him but do sorry. you think that James Dean was a good actor in his own right or was he as the New York Times called him at the time histrionic gingerbread who was just doing every just doing a Brando impression in all of his movies
0: I thought, I think he's great. And I think he was still honing his craft. So we never got Mm -hmm. to see the full arc and the full development of his acting style and technique. Uh, I do feel from an acting standpoint, I, you know, I studied like Meisner and method acting a tiny bit, Mm -hmm. but from watching Rebel Without a Cause, I do see how some people can feel like that. Like I said earlier, kind of luxuriating and being over the top a bit, but either way, it was great. And uh, I do feel personally, is his best piece of work, However, uh, again, to answer your question about Brando, I don't think he was, I think he looked up to him, inspired by him, but Brando didn't create that style of acting. He did not create improv. He did not create- Exactly. I mean, they went to the same school. Yeah, yeah. And also James Dean was always authentically himself. He didn't just wake up and decide, like put up a poster of Marlon Brando in his room and be like, I wanna be this bad boy energy. Like I'm gonna do everything. James was always
1: authentically him. So I rewatched East of Eden before I recorded the episode. And there were Mm -hmm. times where I thought he was, you know, overdoing it a little bit. There were Mm -hmm. some, you know, they, they don't, I always say that they don't film each scene just once they do take after take after take, and they've got to use the best one. So sometimes do I think that maybe the best take where like the lighting was great or the sound was great. Is it necessarily the best acting take? Not always, Mm -hmm. Um, but there were definitely scenes where he's brilliant. Uh, right. And I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that he um, was stealing from Brando or anything like that. Cal yeah. Trask was so much like James Dean; it's actually scary. Yes, you know, it, um, he had I mean, so much to draw from from his own life. I don't think that he needed to uh, to do a Brando impression. Um, but like you yeah. said, there are moments in Rebel Without a Cause where he's also like he's a little little weak sauce sometimes. But mm-hmm. I think by the time you get to Giant, he's pure gold. Yeah yeah he has no weak moments in that. I can the scene you know where what? he strikes oil. I can never watch that just once. I have to always rewind it like three or four times,
0: yeah, and it's not just delivering the dialogue he that one of my favorite shots, uh even just in terms of how gorgeous it was, but when that second of East of Eden when he's on the train, that's just oh yes, going, yes he's
1: like putting the sweater on like covering himself with a sweater, yeah
0: yeah, and his physicality and his acting and just he can deliver energy and dialogue without there being any dialogue and that's yes. what you know, that's was really, acting yes and <laughs> yeah. and the same with uh his counterpart and played aaron i'm forgetting the
1: oh richard Davalos.
0: yeah and he he was good and he obviously wasn't supposed to during his character transition you know to becoming uh finally realizing that there's some darkness in the world and mm-hmm. figuring out some stuff with his dad um I didn't think he needed to hundred percent match James Dean's brooding because maybe it's personal taste. James Dean, you know, was brooding like a little bit like hamming it mm-hmm. up sometimes, you know, uh, yes. but at the same time though, I feel bad saying it, but you can just like, he's not James Dean. He's yeah. just not, yeah. he's not fully in his body. That's, like he's, yeah. Like Genesis I can't,
1: I can't picture anyone else in the Aaron character. Like I think, you know, that now that I've seen the movie so many times, Richard Davalos is Aaron, you know, and he he does look right. enough like James Dean where you could, you know, conceive that they could be twins. But, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking like they passed over Paul Newman. Yeah. I mean, I like Richard Davalos in the role, but he just wasn't that caliber of actor that James Dean was. And that shows. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, they look a lot alike. Uh, and he's not bad. He's not bad in the movie at all, not by any means. And he went on <laughs> to have a, you know, a, a career in film. Mm-hmm. Um. But I wonder what it would have been like had they maybe gone with Paul Newman instead, since he did mm-hmm. have an intensity of his own, just not the dark intensity that, that James Dean had that they needed for Cal.
0: Absolutely. It's that je ne sais quoi where it's that certain energy you can't put your finger on in dark, but not too yeah.
1: dark. Yeah, Davalos wasn't, I mean, I'm going. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to say... That he was not a method actor. You know, he seemed kind mm-hmm. of like the the acting style of this the old studio system, you know, before method kind of, you know, came in and swept the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting her 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 name, but the person who played uh the long lost mother.
1: Oh, uh Joe uh, Van Fleet.
0: Yeah, her mm-hmm. acting was great. She's
1: great. She's not in great. much of the film, but she's great. She and yeah. she, you know, her, I feel like she didn't really hold up. You know, like people today, even you know, uh, people who are fans of old Hollywood, uh, mm-hmm. especially younger fans, probably don't know who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really it's a shame because she's she's such a great actress.
0: Yeah, and I had read that she that was one of her first films. Uh, she had done it theater. was her first film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and she had done stage work, theater things here and there. But uh, that's that's very different for Hollywood, of course. Uh, right. Especially that. Well, any time in Hollywood, it's usually you start really young, and not you're a newcomer at uh, thirty
1: eight. Yeah, uh, yeah, she was thirty eight yeah. when she made her first film. But she well, she knew Kazan from the Actors Studio. Mm-hmm. And, so and you can
0: tell myself. in the piece, of course, it's John Steinbeck. It's going to be
1: mm-hmm.
0: very heavy dialogue very theatrical in a way uh so i do like especially in the 50s they did this like i do like that they will borrow actors from stage and onto screen because with such heavy motif and metaphor and everything they were dealing with in that film uh you really needed people who weren't just commercial actors or someone who's you know was just in a pepsi cola commercial just smiling for the camera kind of thing
1: exactly i like that you brought up the time period because this was Mm -hmm. this this was uh, Eisenhower's America. Right. Good, clean, wholesome, all American. You know, there, you had your, um, Andy Hardy's, that was the Hollywood's interpretation of the teenager. He right. was a perfect son who came from the perfect family, who had a perfect relationship with his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have in the early fifties, we get Marlon Brando in the wild one. Mm-hmm. Then James Dean comes. Then you get Elvis Presley. <laughs> yes. All that combined led to uh, the, the corruption of the, the youth. adolescent mind. Yes. Personal delinquency was actually a legitimate threat to the nation. <laughs> they were uh, terrified of teenagers at the time. What yeah. you tell us about the cultural significance of James Dean, of Brando, of Presley? Well, you what have a. Have- the time. Yeah,
0: well you have a whole generation that was raised by the silent generation and that generation had seen so much trauma from World War 1 and 2, the Great Depression. And that's just on a global scale, then you have to, you know, get down to where they come from and where like what country they're from and little societies, but I think then that next generation, James Dean, they felt that and their parents I think on one hand, of course, like any generation had positive traits and positive lessons to teach, but specifically there was no, no, any idea of someone going to therapy. No way would you sit there and try to self-examine how you could be passing on trauma to your kids or repeating cycles of abuse. And that generation was, they're pissed. And on top of it, they also had more free time because now in the 50s, the economy is the best it's ever been. I mean, it was uh, at a time where look at inflation, you could actually work a minimum wage job and survive. <laughs> and um house. and own a house. Crazy. You could have one job. And um so now rather than it being say 50 years ago where you know you have kids so you can run your farm, and no longer is it that you don't have more kids so they can go work in some industrialized mm-hmm you know, factory in the 1890s and uh, kids had free time. Maybe they had an allowance. Maybe they had a nice suburban house and they had a, a cabin vacation home somewhere else. And the kids were finally able to hang out and do whatever they wanted after school within reason. So then people started developing personality and independence. But what comes with that is fear for some because personality and independence means lack of control. And I think that's really where it stands because it was that fear of what are these kids up to? And sure, some of it's a valid fear, like I don't want someone to get hurt or get, you know, right. some experience something they're they're too young for. But at the same time, uh, yeah, there was that fear of like, are they making out at the movies at the drive-in? Are they smoking cigarettes? <laughs> but also at the same time, I think that happens, it's always gonna happen, like every 50 years. You know, even now, like what's a a lot of normal Americans' biggest fear for their kids, like they're giving into communism. They are, you know, dyeing their hair purple.
1: Right. And I don't think it helped that, you know, we've talked, we've narrowed it down to Dean Presley and Brando as, you know, they, they Mm -hmm. were the, uh, they galvanized the teen rebellion movement, at least for Mm -hmm. the white American youth. Right. Right. I think it didn't help that they were all three of them very attractive men who had sexuality on their sleeve. You know, right. Like nobody was afraid of Mickey Rooney corrupting <laughs> the youth. You know? Yeah.
0: And um yeah, absolutely. Those those three really honed in that image for uh white American teens.
1: In the film, they make it seem like it's a primarily white town. I mean, you've got the the um the workers that me- I believe they're supposed to be Mexican workers. Mm-hmm. Um there's a couple of black folks in the town, but for the most part it seems like it's a mostly white area. Now you said you're familiar with the area. Um what can you tell us about, I mean, I'm sure now things are different, or I would like to imagine that they're different. Um, but what can you kind of tell us about the history of the area?
0: Sure. So Monterey and Salinas, well, that whole area is connected to Big Sur. Mm-hmm. and it, uh, First there's indigenous Shumash and other tribes who bled up from Santa Barbara all the way up through that coast. Um, and then eventually Spanish conquistadors came and they, uh, Originally, California was under Spanish control. Uh, A few parts of that area, I believe, actually had like a little bit of Russian influence, but they were kind of pushed more north. And then eventually, of course, um, California became territory of America and so forth. Okay. So that area right now of Monterey, though, is upper echelon, especially Big Sur. Yes. So Monterey is, have you seen Big Little Lies, the show on Hulu? Yes. Yeah, so that takes place there.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, all right. So it's not a farming town <laughs> anymore.
0: No, and then. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is farming, like in in the inland area. It's tons and tons. <laughs> of- I, I remember the fires that were happening in California six months ago that were very highly pub- or highly talked about in the news. Uh, yes. You images of people wearing masks due to COVID, you know, and like trying to get everything out of the fields as much as possible, and there are still. It, it's not a lot has changed from the movie and there are still people getting paid less than living wage. Um,
1: mm.
0: working. People who are Latina, it, it's all over. I know that if you keep going a little bit inland Watsonville, I think almost when you get to Santa Cruz, it, the demographic is majority Latina, Hispanic. Salinas is very, you see, you he refers to that in the film, you know, uh, Monterey is kind of the, the bad land, like where his mom yeah. was. They live in Salinas. That area is very quiet.
1: Now, Salinas, is that where I know he died, James Dean died in Shalamb. I think he was on yeah. his way to Salinas, right, for the race?
0: He was. Yes, he was. Yeah. So he, was going, he wasn't driving up the coast. He was on Highway 1. He was using uh, the central more desert town area. Yeah, he's speeding through it on his way to a car race in Salinas, and he got hit in that area. And I've been there. Uh, there's only a tiny little memorial plaque.
1: Mm-hmm. and i've seen pictures of it yeah
0: yeah and then there's the two highways and it's like it happened here and then there's like right. that's, but, you know i guess that's fine too because uh you know you're not like disturbing the land and stuff as much you're right saying,
1: well no you said i think it was in your natalie wood episode that you said you believe that people are more than their deaths
0: absolutely yeah
1: right uh, so i mean it's nice that they have a little a little thing there to remember him by but um you know, I, like you said, he's there's more to him than the way that he died, which is why I really didn't want to. I mean, I touched on it in the episode, but I really didn't want to dive into it. But it, it's weird. how his life came full circle. I was first movie took place there, and that's where he um, he was on his way there when he passed.
0: Well, yeah, and then uh, we talked about this on Instagram too. He used his money from his first film to get because he was in a play he didn't really like in New York.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, he didn't really agree with the the production where it was going. You know, he was living paycheck to paycheck, and he got his break. He used to be eaten, gets there, films it, huge Hollywood check, buys the sports car that ends up being what he crashed and died. But life.
1: I know, yeah. And um, now, I don't know about you. I was, I mean, I'm Catholic on paper, but I'm not a very good one. Um, I went to Catholic school, but it didn't it didn't take. but yes, me too. Yeah, <laughs> so you know the drill. Uh, I can appreciate something that is inspired by religion or has religious themes. Mm. Um, So there's this whole book, I mean, the the whole, the, the book and the film are based on um, the story of Adam and Eve. And Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's not, it's not discreet, you know, it's very in your face. It's they, you know, John Steinbeck did not hide where the source material was Mm. drawn from. So what can you tell us about the biblical themes in the film?
0: Well, The lucky thing about when I first saw this film, I did not know anything about it. Uh, Okay. Yeah, I didn't have any spoilers. I didn't have, I hadn't read the book in middle school English class Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And when I was first watching it, the Cain and Abel biblical things were jumping at me and I didn't connect the dots. Yeah, I didn't connect the dots that the title East of Eden is, you know, Garden of Eden, biblical Mm -hmm. Genesis. Um. But it was, I was, it was killing me. I was like, what? And then at the more towards the end, when he mentions you two are like Cain and Abel, it, it just was that like catharsis as an audience member where you're like, I knew it, like yelling at the mm-hmm. screen. Um, but in terms of biblical themes, uh, we don't have to see the Bible, especially if you're someone who's not Christian, Catholic, anything, mm-hmm. you don't have to see it as purely a religious text. Uh, it is, themes that are so human that have been passed down for thousands of years exactly that's what's in east of eden and even the bible itself is a amalgamation of many different ideals Mm -hmm. christianity itself is an abrahamic religion which is is jewish which connects to muslim Mm -hmm. Uh, and the bible was edited for thousands or like a thousand years before the printing press before there was anyone to say that's not what they said anyway (laughs) (laughs) It's these passed down, hugely subconscious, you know, Carl Jung-Freudian ideals. Uh, And in the film itself, it's dealing with the idea of acceptance of turning on someone who is your brother. It is, and you see that mirrored when they turn on, so there's Cain and Abel, so there's the two brothers fighting, a.k.a. Aaron and uh, Cal and you would think to yourself how could you metaphorically or literally kill your brother but then they personify that in when their friend who happens to be german during world war one and the whole town starts running after him and there's there's things brewing there's things bubbling they're disagreeing with certain propagandas and ideas okay and then you start to see that one guy outside the bar he's like hey you know he comes up to him obviously looking for trouble but he says I just want to buy your drink he pushes him out of his way because he's obviously in his space and doing all this stuff threatening mm-hmm. and then the guy gets up and is running after him like uh, hey hey like freaking out because that's now given him just cause to hurt him yes. and that's how you can see yeah you think how could I hurt my brother how could I do this or that but then look how could you it's the same thing. It doesn't matter the nationality or the race. Like how could you as a mob mentality start running after a human being just because they're from a country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then if you really start critically thinking about it, you could see how you can turn on your own mother, father, marriage, leave your husband like she did in two kids when they're babies or kill your brother. And, or even, Oh my gosh, I just realized too, um, Abra, I, at the middle of the movie was almost yelling at the screen, like, how are you interested in your brothers, your, your yes. <laughs> brother? like, I was at first I was like a, a bit upset. And I was like, Hey, you need to like examine, uh, you know, that's fine. If that's what you truly want, just be honest and break up and go, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, during the film, you're following that with her she's trying to figure that out for herself and admit that to herself and that's too hard mm-hmm. to admit um but anyway that's another Canyonable enable situation right there how can you go from this man you're engaged to be married with and plan a life with and then his brother you know
1: yeah
0: but then by the end of the movie it makes sense and you're rooting for her and you're like crying because you 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 ship them <laughs> you want it to work
1: yeah
0: <laughs> so yes that is a huge biblical theme in the film.
1: Yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, literally killing your brother. Right, uh, right. You know, like we said, the Bible is just, it's a, it's a combination of stories, of, you know, myths. Um, right. And so it doesn't have to be taken literally or at face value. And, and you know, Cal doesn't kill Aaron, um, but he does kill his spirit.
0: He could not handle, that was a a legitimate schism in his psyche. He could yeah. not it would never be the same, and hence I like that we never find out what happens after. But mm-hmm. the director does lead us to believe that he dies, like he goes to war to die because he can't end his life.
1: Yes, yes, but uh, in the film, it's kind of open-ended. You know, it's it's up to your interpretation. But I think it's every, you know it's safe to assume that yeah. with the state he was in, that he's not going to fare well.
0: Right, he wouldn't be as alert and um, have yeah. that to survive war. Hard
1: no. <laughs> what do you think? How do you rate the, uh, the legacy of this film? Do you think it holds up today that it still like could resonate with young people as it did in the fifties?
0: It can on a subconscious level because the themes they're dealing with will always mm. be relevant. Right. However, our attention span is so short or I mean, even for yeah. me, especially I, I did live in New York for a little bit. I had a high fast paced life. I'm on my phone, mm-hmm. go, 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 go. I'm working different jobs through different apps and my attention span is very short, but I don't have issue getting through this film for a multitude of reasons, theater background, James Dean love, old Hollywood love, all of that. Right, yeah. But this generation is truly, turn on Netflix, the edited colors have been edited to loop you into it, Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: you just kind of click what's trending on Twitter. Oh, cool, I've heard about The Circle. Oh, Bird Box. It's supposed to be crazy. you click it, because other people are posting about it, and the movies are made to be quick, jump, crazy, go for it. Oh, that actress mm-hmm. I saw, the other thing. And yeah, so my point being, I don't, I can't really see a lot of people uh, appreciating the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did start asking before jumping on this podcast, I did start asking a few circles of friends of mine, people who wear anything, people outside of the old Hollywood circle, if they'd seen it. And I think I got like two out of 80 people. Oh, Wow. Right. The film's respected in terms of it's part of, it's preserved. And uh, isn't there like a, the American Film Institute Archive? Yeah. Or like, mm-hmm. yeah. So the film the film got Academy Award noms. The film is very well known in, and, and, uh, you know, film community.
1: Right. But... I agree with what you said. Like, the Avengers don't come in and save the world in this one.
0: Right. You know? And yeah. even... I think it's hard for people, too, because the film is very dated in terms of they're working with Technicolor for some of the first time. They're working with wide-angle shots. Uh, mm-hmm. the, some of the lighting was a little Brechtian. It was a little bit German expressionism, like the very mm-hmm. ending. Or, oh, towards the end, too, that guy, and you see the shadow of his hat, like, on the wall, and then... yes with some shadow play and you can see how that's kind of like a 20s 10s things happening but then the themes they were exploring although it was biblical was very 1950s because you've got death of a salesman and the breakdown of that generation and silent generation but then the acting style is like 50s and but the time period is world war one yeah yeah so that was a big uh
1: i think for, for the time this was edgy james dean was edgy um right. But I think nowadays, as much as I like the film, and I really do like it, and I think he's great in it, and really the whole yeah. cast really is great in it, um, yeah. I just don't think it offers enough for, let's say, like the millennial Gen Z right. audience who needs a little bit more from their films. Also, I think with the, the lack of diversity in the film, True. Definitely. Yeah, I don't think that's going to really speak to a lot of people, but I think James Dean will always be a bit of a curiosity i mean even if people don't finish the film i think as people learn about him and unfortunately learn about how he died they do mm-hmm. seek him out just to um i don't know there's i we all we're all a little bit of a we all have morbid curiosities i know i do i admit it um yeah. so i think yeah you know like same thing with um with Marilyn. i think people just find them they you know they always they find their work whether or not they can appreciate it as another story
0: right Right, and that's completely fine. You don't need to, like, to listeners here on this podcast, please do not think that you have to be, like, method actors slash films. Cinephiles,
1: critique. yeah. <laughs> yeah no,
0: like, if you like a movie because you like it, go for it. If you love Bird Box, yes, like, I'm not going to sit here and yeah. say, I don't eat junk food and watch reality TV. I love mm-hmm. some, uh, oh, my gosh, what is that one? 90 Day Fiance, hi.
1: Oh, I <laughs> fell down that rabbit hole during quarantine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know. So anyway, that being said, though, I think it's less about oh, this older generation knows nothing about books and stage plays. No, no, no. It's just more the, again, lack of representation. It's two hours long. It's, yeah, it, it, yeah, it just doesn't totally- It's
1: about the problems of a, of a rich white family also.
0: And also it's a very masculine film. Yeah, it does talk about female and that female energy and mother roles and different roles that are <laughs> necessary, but it is a very- you know, it's a, it's a male movie, and the, the two women in it, the main roles, are mm. both trying to get, like, the one Abra is trying to get with one of the guys, and then the other woman is, like, the scorned, she kind of, uh she's a bit of an anti-hero, but there's also that taste of she didn't do her, like, her womanly job in that sense of, like, she left the, the family and left the kids. Yeah, and,
1: usually it's the dad who leaves, but it was a mom who abandoned her kids um, this time.
0: And yeah. although she got money, and although... Those things you can also tell she was not rewarded for that behavior because she was unhappy, maybe an alcoholic, and she also was running a, she was a pimp.
1: Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I do love the movie. I love James Dean. I know. Um, I mentioned it before that whenever he comes up on Instagram, somebody like leaves a comment like they just don't get it. And my my grandfather, he was a huge. A movie buff he got me into it he he's the mm-hmm. um the one who inspired me to be uh you know an old hollywood fanatic mm-hmm. and he was you know late teens early 20s in the 50s and i remember talking to him when i first like really got into to james dean i first like i bought a like a was a three-disc set of his movies, um, and I was just devouring them. And my grandfather, I asked him, like, you know, what was it like when when James Dean, like, first broke and he became, like, a sensation? What was it like? What were people saying about him? Did you buy a red jacket and want to drive a sports car? And he said that, you know, he grew up in the tenements of Greenwich Village, uh, where people lived, you know, like, on top of each other. And it was not total squalor, but it wasn't that much above it. And he said truthfully, you know, to those of us who lived in in an urban area, you know, who really we came from poor immigrant families, we didn't understand what he was angry about. You know, in East of Eden and in Rebel, like in Rebel Without a Cause, my grandfather, I remember him saying, "What would they be rebelling against?" Like we didn't see what they they had beautiful houses. They lived in in cul-de-sacs, and they had their own car. The kids had their own cars. They went to they know they would go to they had money to go to the movies and to go get milkshakes and stuff like that. He said like the rest of us, we're all working and, you know, our parents worked in factories and they could barely make the the rent. And, you know, just to to him or people who who came from his background, he didn't understand what the teen rebellion craze is all about because the kids who were rebelling. Go ahead.
0: Oh, sorry. yeah. You don't have the luxury of having the time to dwell on your emotions. You're exhausted. You're working all yeah. in crappy. You, wherever you're working, that probably doesn't have the best uh, um, protection laws against safety, blah, blah, blah. And you're exhausted. You're just trying to get by. How do you have time to sit there and brood and get to think about how you feel? And I yeah. think that's another reason why James Dean, Marlon Brando, and uh, Elvis were so shocking because they allowed feeling. And that was the rebellion against the silent generation. Guess what? I'm not going to come down from my room to say hi to dad's coworker for this dinner party, F you. And I'm Mm going to go out on my motorcycle. That is like, (gasps) to that generation, (laughs) especially pre mental health respect and believing that depression's even real. That is like,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: no, no, no. That whole generation before that is it doesn't matter what you're feeling or thinking. You don't have that love. Like, no, you need to respect your parents by showing up to the school function or to church or to a dinner party. And you put your hands, you fold your hands nicely. You say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You smile, mm-hmm. you clean up things and you go to your room. Like, don't be a crybaby. And so their rebellion was, guess what? I feel, and guess what? You, as my parent, have a responsibility to help me emotionally emotionally be like, you need to help me with my inner monologue and help me be my parent. You know, you need to, like, you you can mess me up. So just because you give me food and shelter doesn't mean you're a good parent.
1: Right. And I think also the expectations on kids back then prior to like this teen rebellion, well, you know, you went to high school. When
0: Mm -hmm. you finished
1: school, you either got married, maybe went to college. And then you started having kids of your own right away. And you really, there was really no time to kind of enjoy your youth. You know, kids became adults, you know, as soon as they finished high school. And so I think that was, there was a push to like, no, no, let's slow down. Let's, Mm -hmm. I I don't want that. Like, I don't want to do what you tell me to do. I want to do my own thing. I want to, you know, like even my research, I turned up that prior to the 50s, the word teenager was hardly used. You know, there wasn't even a name for that. You were just an adolescent. You were a child until you were out of the house and getting married.
0: That's so true. Yeah. And finally, around the 50s, I think that generation was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me we have refrigerators and TVs and cars and telephones and on and on and on. And you want to act like this is 1910 in the middle of nowhere. Like, no, I didn't guess, you know, yeah. And again, like you said, the word teenager, it's like, I'm not getting married at 15, betrothed to this random kid in town, the only other guy, so I can start having kids to work on our farm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You were a child, you helped around, and then you got married and had kids. Done. You don't get to play. You don't get to hang out. You don't get to have time to think about your emotions. Not everyone, but, you know.
1: It's it's funny that kids also, I feel like they had to grow up a lot quicker back then also, and I think that's one thing that, um, that stood out about James Dean was that he was kind of like a big little boy
0: he was he was he definitely was
1: um you know that and that was different too. I mean, we talked about how people were or at least men certainly were not emotional back then it was uh it was there was this machismo that i mean i 'm sure that it still exists today, but back then it was way ahead of its time to have a man who sulked or who cried yeah. openly and who wore his emotions on his sleeve. Um, but then you had James Dean who was just he even, you know, like little dance he does through the bean field, or like the way he pouts and he kicks up things and he just kinda like the facial expressions that he makes and his reactions to things. It's really like a big little boy, and even Julie Harris said that he was kind of like untouched by his sexuality, that he was like kind of unaware of it, and he's still like I don't know if it was maybe losing his mom so young and probably getting the cold shoulder from his dad for so many years that he just kinda got stunted in a way.
0: And living in the middle of nowhere. I mean, yeah, he lived on his, you know, uh, extended family's farm, in Fairmont, Indiana, and he did so during a time when they had radios and TVs. And he probably mm-hmm. had. He was such a creative person too. He probably felt really stifled and really out of place, and especially because he grew up in California for a little while. So to go from Santa yes. Monica, LA, back to the farm, great, you know. <laughs> uh, and another side note, I loved in the film how Abra said to the father. Uh, while he was uh, temporarily paralyzed from his stroke, she said, if you don't give him a sign or tell him that you love him, he will never be a man. And normally taken out of context, there would be some kickback. Like what is the idea of quote, a man or be a man, right? But after the whole journey of that film and, and within the context of the movie in that moment, it wasn't, it was more men or AKA, you know, that masculine energy growing up to be a mature adult cannot be whole without yes. that being healed. And I just thought that was so, that was so great because even now you, you don't see people touching on these topics as much. And, mm-hmm. uh, Maybe not, of course, talking on topics of seeing films through the male perspective, but more so what it means to, quote, be a man or, quote, have that male mentor to look up to. And again, um, yeah, James Dean did walk that line of he wasn't necessarily overly emotional, manic baby toddler. Right. But he's still, and I think he's still that macho, masculine man. And yes. um, people don't really explore those themes anymore. I, I loved in the film how, uh, in terms of how they were representing the other women in the film, but there's that true, true yin and yang acknowledgement of the film that masculine needs feminine energy. Yes, that's that a good that. point. Yeah, and, and none of those characters would have been able to realize what they went through with it, if it not being for uh, the way those female characters break, broke the stasis. So the way that the mom left him uh, because he's not a good person um, or because what Abra did and how Abra became the pseudo mom to him because he wasn't getting it from mm-hmm. his father and, and eventually was the person that drew those two together and how like you cannot have stable, mature men without, for lack of a better word, that, Feminine.
1: What I do like about this film is that the the love triangle is secondary, you know, like it's yeah. not uncommon to see a guy pining over the unrequited love of a love interest or a girl, you know, pining over a, a guy that she can have. That's been done to death, but this is different. This is a young man who's pining for the love of his father.
0: Yes, and that yeah. I love that too, where they could touch that and be so honest about that, and I'm so happy that nobody that I know of in the media or press, or even when it first came out, were thrown off by that. Because I think if that film had been made any earlier, people would call it, they would fear monger and be like, "Yes, that's, that's, I don't know, gay, or that's, ah, oh my God. Mm-hmm. I don't think they'd be, they wouldn't have been ready for it. And I don't think the silent generation was of course ready to examine the relationship mm-hmm. between father and son in a way that wasn't me teaching them how to fish or how to right, play yeah. baseball. <laughs> you know, the old theme of let's play baseball, dad. That's not about playing baseball. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean you really,
1: you didn't challenge parents' authority, and parents were always shown as like being devoted to their children. Um, you know, and the, I think even in the the tagline for Rebel Without a Cause is something like, and they came from perfect families. Ooh. You know, Actually, so
0: that was Natalie Woods parents did not want her to do that film for that specific reason. Her mother tried very hard and tried to talk to other studio execs to not let that movie happen and natalie wood felt so stifled and so controlled i mean her whole life was controlled however she knew she was the the breadwinner of the family she knew ultimately her she still had some level of respect but anyway that was kind of her little rebellion against her own parents was doing that movie wow and being the role of someone who kisses him on screen and smokes a cigarette and all that Mm stuff
1: Well, but prior to that, she was a child star, right? She hadn't really done any like mature
0: right. acting
1: yet. Right? Okay. Exactly. Well, what a film to rebel in too.
0: Right. That movie Isabine, it's 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 definitely one of my one of my favorites. I don't think it's a film that I'll watch over and over and over and over. It's not, you know, uh I mean you can if you want to, but for yeah. me, it's like you watch it and it's just very impressionable and it's one of those pieces you still think about it for days after.
1: Right. I will. I can agree with you. I mean, I think I've only seen it this. I think I just watched it again for the third time when I was preparing to do this episode. So even mm-hmm. though I can, I love it and appreciate it, it's not something that like I got to watch every year, you know, like for me, that it's a wonderful life is that movie for me that yeah. I could watch. I could watch it or some like it hot, you know, I could watch those again and again and again. Um, yeah. but this is, it's so long too. It is. Um, it's, it's a movie that I can appreciate and unfortunately I don't know if it'll hold up. I think, um, You know the curiosity that has become James Dean is what will bring people to it in future Mm -hmm. generations. But and it's not because it's not to take away from the film. I mean, it's it's a really well made film. It's well acted. The whole cast is great in it. Um, But like you said, I just think it has it's got values in it that don't really speak to today's audiences like it did at the time. Although I will say that I think all young people can relate to feeling like they're misunderstood or like there's some type of disconnect with their parents, exactly. you know, at some point. Um, but unfortunately that's not the whole movie, you know, that's, you can't sell the movie on that. That's really, although I won't, I won't say that it's not what the film is about. Cause it is about this, you know, this fraught relationship between a father and son. Um, mm. But I think it's been done uh, in more relatable ways to moviegoers today.
0: <laughs> well, and today it's not relatable to think that not reading the Bible at dinner, the way that your yeah. dad wants you to read it is. Revealing. I love that scene. Yeah. Uh, Cause now teens that that's totally normal back then. And sure some people still do that now, but that's oh, not, yeah. if someone said to you after <laughs> dinner, father has us all read from the Bible by candlelight, they'd be like, uh, <laughs> are you Amish? What is that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Oh I love that scene though. I uh, I I had to put a language warning in the intro. Not because not that I'm a stranger to uh cursing, but mm-hmm. um you just assume that they uh went according to the script and that Raymond Massey was acting as actors do. I had no idea that James Dean was saying those words when the camera was on Massey to get that reaction mm-hmm. from him. But it's perfect though.
0: I wish we had I wonder if there's some vault somewhere of like cut scenes in some Hollywood lot. Oh, that, there's got to yeah. be.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, release it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. But um, oh, and now one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Cal, uh, Adam rejects the money that Cal wants to give him. Um, and now you talked a little bit about the method, mm-hmm. and you know, we talked about James Dean having a estranged relationship with his own father, who was his only surviving parent, and he, you know, was never really able to reach him. How does how does that scene Kind of measure up with with the method, and you know what James Dean must have been channeling in that moment. You know the script called for him to just like stomp his feet and grab the money and storm out of the room, but instead he pulls him in for this uncomfortable, desperate hug, and and Massey just stood there and he didn't know what to do. And it's it's so perfect. His reaction is perfect. Dean's reaction is is like scary real, mm-hmm. uh, and it's heartbreaking, and and you feel his embarrassment and his pain. Mm-hmm.
0: I think a uh, previous acting style was you're hired, you're in this production, and therefore the blocking here is your lines, and the blocking says, act shocked, grab money, walk out door. So you act shocked, grab money, and walk out the door. Okay. Yeah. But when you think about it in method acting, you think, why? What is your character's motive? What is gonna make mm. me leave? Well, I'm not just gonna get up and leave a room, especially storming out after an argument. How many times have you done that in your real life where you've truly stormed right. out and slammed the door? That's that's the big moment. Um, and so in terms of James, he was thinking, he was, uh, which I'm sure you covered, but his, he had such a strong connection to his mother in real life. Mm-hmm. She passed ovarian cancer, he's nine. And him and his father just never had that connection that James needed. And
1: no, there was some dad percentage. shipped him off right away.
0: Yeah. And then he also gets, he feels, gets sent away. And then uh, the director of East of Eden had actually gone with James to meet with his dad right before filming. Mm-hmm. And that honestly could have been that Cal, look, I made the money for you moment because, look, dad, you never thought it was enough. But i just signed a huge contract in hollywood and i'm about to be the lead in this incredible film that my debut look dad he didn't care I, nope. I mean i can't assume i wasn't there but from everything we've read i mean come on if his dad was truly proud of him he would have been front row of the opening night of east of eden
1: yeah that was so sad too i found i um I've read that uh it was in I think it was in PhotoPlay magazine, No Modern Screen, Modern Screen, that they tracked his father down for mm-hmm. comment after East of Eden was released and his dad was so proud of him and he, you know he, all these things he never got to say to his face or maybe he couldn't say mm-hmm. to his face um and you know the article didn't run for months after it was it was um after he was interviewed mm-hmm. and by the time it was printed I think it was like August of 55 and James mm-hmm. Dean died a month later. And so the odds that he read it or even knew about it are, are really slim. But that that to me was just so sad, so sad mm-hmm. that, you know, the most important review he would get, the approval that he sought his whole life, mm-hmm. much as Cal does, was from his dad, who initially stopped talking to him when he found out his son wanted to become an actor. And now here <laughs> he was embracing him and... Ugh, it's too little too yeah. late.
0: Yeah. So in that scene, you can definitely see... James' method of acting hence, uh, pulling from his own experiences with his father. and mm-hmm. but human psyche psychology us as his people are so complex. and part of the reason why James Dean is so good is because he is able to translate and, and act in a complex way. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't predict what he's going to do next or how he's going to say it. So again, relating this to James Dean and his real father in real life, it's not to say James Dean, good guy, James Dean, father, bad evil man. I'm sure maybe he did say to him, well, I'm proud of your son, like great, you're in California, I don't know. But from everything we could have read and have seen in even extended extended family members and friends can, can say like their relationship, there was a piece that just didn't, James didn't get the validation and the connection mm-hmm. he wanted so badly. And then translating it back to that scene, that hug is real. Uh, And and the reaction of like, Cal, stop, Cal, Cal, because he knows the real actor is shocked and he's angry in real life.
1: And he hated James Dean. He's
0: like, we have to shoot this scene, but he doesn't want to break the character because then the scene is truly ruined. And then on top of it, he's probably very frustrated too, because he's, he's being touched like that boundary's being crossed. It's like, dude, get Mm. off me, get off me, ew. Yeah.
1: But Brilliant. I think it's also interesting. Right before um, he opens Cal's gift, he embraces Abra and Aaron when they announce their engagement.
0: Oh,
1: and, you he, know, and he had no problem or no qualms or there was no no awkwardness in doing that. But then when it comes to Cal, he's like, "Get off of me!"
0: Ew, when Whether or not turned,
1: that was done intentionally, um, I, yeah. I it probably wasn't, but it is interesting.
0: When he says. I'm not taking this, give it back. Like I was actually shocked as an audience member. I didn't expect that at all. I thought he was going to be, I truly thought he was going to be touched. Like you, you, this has been like three years and you like still, wow, son, like you farmed a whole field and you did a whole business by yourself. Oh my God. And at first I wasn't surprised that he thought, oh, he stole it or something. But then I thought he would finally be like, oh my God, you really did make this money. Wow. my gosh. And I was like shocked and upset with James. I really was. And, uh, that's a pivotal moment too, because you realize James is not a bad person. He is not those labels. They all were living with James Dean as a kid, uh, sorry, his character of Cal kept mm-hmm. thinking I'm bad. I inherited badness from my bad mom. Who's bad for right. eating." Right. He kept telling himself that and he started believing it and and your psychology and manifesting that is so strong, so powerful. And then he convinced other people around him it was true. And they all told themselves that his father, uh, brother Aaron, Abra believed it at first in the beginning, she was like terrified of him. And it's so poignantly tragic that what James Dean lied to himself about or, or Cal is what the other characters end up fully believing to their core and that's why the money thing is so tragically hurtful because it's like no you truly think i'm a bad bad person you truly think you hate me you really do hate me and you can't admit that to yourself so definitely that orphan moment that james dean probably felt like wow i have no real family
1: i am i the same way i felt the same way you did when When Adam rejects the money, I was like, oh, my God, how could you do that? This kid works so hard. All he wants to do is impress you and don't act like you don't need this money. But at the same time, he had, I think what's so infuriating is that, for me at least, is that Adam actually doesn't give a bullshit excuse when he says, you know, he's a member of the draft board. He's sending other people's sons to die in this war. How could I take a profit from that? But you're doing it. So,
0: like, he's projecting like, you don't hate your son, you hate yourself because you are sending people off to die.
1: Yes. Like. But I, you know, it wasn't like some bullshit excuse like, oh, well, I just don't like you, Cal, so I can't accept your gift. He, I feel like he actually had a legit excuse. I mean, yes, he was projecting on his own, I think, self-hatred, mm. you know, for, mm. for his participation with the war onto his son. But it's also like, oh, man, he's kind of got a point there. How could he take a profit from that?
0: right no he, he truly does though i I, yeah. I do agree that uh you know knowing oh things are about it's kind of like with covid like ooh, yeah. i'm hearing you know i'm hearing this stuff's about to get really bad so i'm gonna buy every p95 mask ever I mean, all
1: the toilet paper
0: yeah and then i'm going to make a black market for it on ebay that's like Ugh. all right yeah god I, I don't know about you but after watching the movie too um it just kind of that we kind of just have to take a big big breath, like you feel the pent-up emotions and you kind of just... It's a
1: heavy movie. It does. It weighs very heavy on you. It does.
0: Yeah, and again, that's why you don't really watch it over and over because it's not a feel-good holiday. It's not Home Alone, you know? It's not a... Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. Um, All right. Well, Savannah, what can we expect from you next? So
0: I have an episode that I am in post-production editing for about Lupe Velez. She... Yeah. I
1: covered her in a post, yeah, a couple months back. Yeah,
0: great. so I'm gonna do a, an episode about the way she passed. Uh, it's become a living legend, much like James Dean, where it's argued how did she die, and it's this very mm-hmm. traumatized death. And so, we point out the facts and research what truly happened, and the social impacts of that, and some interwo- interwoven racism that uh, happened. Mm-hmm. And then, I currently, right now, am eating exactly like Marilyn Monroe for a week. I actually found a diary entries, some grocery lists of hers, the original menu her and Joe DiMaggio had at a restaurant their first date was at. And um so I'm kind of doing a vlog style experience with that. So some things are great. I'm eating, you know, steak and spinach. And some things are ground-up liver and tomato juice with Worcestershire sauce. Mm. Uh, so yeah. That's, that's just kind of like a lighthearted, like vlog style video. And then I just went to Bodega Bay and filmed Alfred Hitchcock, the birds behind the scenes. What? I'm so excited. I did that on Saturday and yes, I'm excited. That Bodega Bay will be definitely a few weeks out. uh, Just, you know, due to time. I can't, can't edit everything at once. So I will definitely, definitely have that out. Third and then we do have an episode being written by uh, my partner, Renzo, who is writing about three, three Hollywood feuds, three ho- iconic Hollywood feuds in under five minutes. Wow. And so we will, that's going to be the next, the fourth episode coming out sometime. Wow.
1: Yeah. You have some really cool stuff coming up. I'm excited for you. Cool. cool. Like I said, I'm all up to date on all of your stuff. I even listen to you on the, uh, on the Valley of Dolls podcast, mm-hmm. which I also love.
0: Just launched this a couple months ago, and it is really, really fulfilling and amazing to connect with other people who love this and can go on and on about it. Yeah, we all got to stick together. A vintage community is very strong, very small, and this world is not set up for entrepreneurs and, and uh, small right London people to uh, to really make it. So, yeah.
1: And I think you said in uh, on Valley of the Dolls, you said that this kind of was born out of like quarantine boredom.
0: It was, and it, it mm-hmm. you know, I had always wanted to do something similar to this, probably for a couple, like maybe a year or two. I was like, mm-hmm. I just feel like I need to do something creatively that I'm more in control of because, you know, I have that background in theater film, but it just mm-hmm. doesn't, like auditioning for Shrek the musical in New York just doesn't feel right, you know, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something not quite like fulfilling sometimes. So anyway, um, I have been reading old Hollywood books and movies and all those things since I was young. And so I started thinking if I'm going to work a job that's not a typical job per se, what's some of my happiest times in my life? And some of the happiest times in college, my friends and I would like have a martini and blast, uh, you know, Betty Davis and just like ramble <laughs> about like John and Betty. And, and so uh, my was, I was reading a biography on Natalie Wood and my boyfriend looked at me because I was kind of had some c- complaints about the job I was working at that time. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you need to just just do a YouTube channel on this like you know so much like you lo- like this is something you love like share it and i was like oh, i cannot do that i uh, uh, what where am i going to i don't even know how to edit where am i going to get a camera i don't have money for that what would i even say and then covid hit and i was like you no excuse you are in your own way so figure it out if you really want to do it
1: that so- is the exact story of the the genesis of my my podcast yeah. and my Instagram account, same thing. It was quarantine happened. I remember one of my coworkers told me, "No, this is great. You know, creativity is born at times like this," and that really stuck with me. And I was trying to figure out just like what to do, what to do, to occupy my time. And I didn't study acting, but I went to a film school in New York, um, and I I graduated from the New York Film Academy's screenwriting uh, program. And, um, it was like a month into school and it was, it was the most fun I've ever had in school. I'll be honest. Um, but I want to say like a month into it, I realized that I didn't like writing movies nearly as much as I liked writing about movies. Mm
0: -hmm. And so, so,
1: when I realized like my, my calling, my passion was not in being a screenwriter. It was in being like more of like a movie historian, you know, I liked the trivia, I liked the behind the scenes stuff. Um, and I, that was, I uh, graduated in 2012, and I did nothing. I went, I got a job in a completely different industry, uh, mm-hmm. not in the arts. I wasn't doing anything creative. And I was just kind of lamenting that I wasn't a writer, but while I wasn't doing any writing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it just hit me. I don't know what it was about quarantine, about corona, just finally having, like you said, the time that we always complained about not having to pursue our passions. Mm-hmm. I yeah. finally had no excuse. I was like, well, you wanted yeah. to write about movies.
0: Do it. So no.
1: This is the only, you finally have all the time. You said that you never had to pursue your side stuff. So this Mm -hmm. is, this is the time.
0: Oh, and and things come along the way. I I completely understand that. Uh, Not everybody can be lucky enough to have a a little bit of extra finances to put into a camera lens or some lighting. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But if you really, it is very vulnerable to put yourself out there. And you're never going to wake up and say, this is my perfect brand. This is the formula of my episodes. This is how it's all going to happen. you got to figure it out along the way. And if you really want something, you'll find the tools. I thought, oh, I could never do graphic design or make Instagram mm-hmm. posts. And then I realized, oh, there's there's Canva and it's free. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll just make a couple little things and see how people like it. And um, the same with, with audio. I don't have the best audio in the world, but it's getting better and it's getting better. and um, the people will come to you. So,
1: yeah, yeah, and you just just experiment and figure out what works. I know you came on camera before. Uh, you're, you know, look so beautiful with your your old Hollywood style and your vintage look on. And I'm sitting on the floor <laughs> with my microphone on top of my dryer with a blanket over me, which is why I didn't turn my camera on because I look like cousin it right now.
0: I wasn't sure. Last time I did a podcast, <laughs> I showed up in my pajamas with no hair done, nothing, nothing, and Uh-huh. Uh, they they turned on the podcast, and they were like, "Hi." And I was like, "Oh <laughs> literally in my bed with like in a sports bra. And uh-huh. everything turned out fine, but uh yeah, and no worries when I'm film it's 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 right here in my living room, and I have a little backdrop, and then I like make a tiny little set, and then I with some stuff around my house, and then I you know like run to the bathroom and fix my hair, and then maybe I like take a sip of wine and yeah,, nah. mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, I mean, you just got to make it work. And I mean, like you said, if you if you really want to do it, you know you um you stop making excuses, and like i I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I know this is not the most professional operation, um but it's just fun, and it's what I've always wanted to do, and i you know i'm I'm having a lot of fun with it and you know like mm-hmm. you said the the vintage community, the old Hollywood community, it's small, mm-hmm. but I have to say it's so uh, at least in my experience, it's been overwhelmingly positive, everybody is so welcoming yeah. and nice,
0: yeah,
1: you know, like the internet can be a really scary toxic place, but um people from in this community they've been they've been nothing but but kind and and so encouraging too all right well savannah i'm sure this will not be the last time i have you on the show it's been great talking to you i'm so glad we finally got to do this because i think we've been talking about it for like a month now yes right yeah it's been about a month yeah so we finally got to sit down and do it awesome thank you so much Okay, thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you so much to Savannah for joining me today. I'm positive that this will not be the last time we hear from her on this show. And if you've made it this far into the episode, thank you so much for sticking with me. I know this was a long one, but I hope it was worth your while. I'm already working on episode four. When I first started the show, I didn't know how often I'd be able to get these done, but so far I'm doing two a month, which I think is good. So episode four will be up probably within the next two weeks, and I've already got the next few episodes planned out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 2021. I'm looking forward to the growth of the show. I'm looking forward to doing more of these, and I hope you guys will be there with me. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to follow me on Instagram at the pictures got small. And with that, as always... Of all the podcasts, on all the streaming platforms, on all the smartphones in all the world, I'm certainly glad you found mine. I'm Francesca Luisi, and this has been The Pictures Got Small.
0: Oh, why did I have to fall in love with such a fool?
1: I ran into a story for you, a front-page story you're a dear, sweet boy, and you'll bring my little present. I happen to know the police are looking for this car. Oh,
0: dear, I hoped you wouldn't.
1: You heard me say no, didn't you? Well, that's what I mean.
0: See here, I told you I wasn't asking anything from anybody. I can take care of myself. Maybe you have, but if you think I want to stay cooped up in this place any longer, than I have to. Well, this is one of the biggest stories that's cracked in a long time. I've simply got to get it to my paper. No worry about that. We've got all the time in the world. Thank you for listening to pictures got small. Remember,
1: Hollywood was glamorous and sometimes dark.